Hey, welcome to the InterVR Podcast. I'm Chris Miranda, your host. Today's conversation is with a really, really cool friend of mine. Her name is Clorama Dervilias. She's the CEO and founder of The Bias VR, and she's using virtual reality for behavioral training, um, bias training. And yeah, she's super cool, and I'm really excited for this conversation. So um, without further ado, enjoy the show. Yeah, so I'm I'm I doing the startup stuff. That's yeah. kind of my whole. Uh, I'm I don't have much. I don't have anything such as free days <laughs> or time really. Like I had, uh, I kind of spend all around the clock, um, kind of working, uh, having a lot of phone meetings, having a lot of like uh, we're basically uh, HP is our client right now, so we're just doing a lot of. Uh, product work for them and kind of have to do a lot of like marketing stuff doing a lot of like you, you were at the rap party it's been kind of like non-stop like every single day like kind of have being stretched in and being kind of involved in too many things and I think it's been taking a toll on me it's been about five months and I've been kind of going on this way, path and so like this last week I've, I've been trying to slow it down and it's kind of just been hitting me like you know it's like when you've been going hard on something or like if you're at school and you have like finals week or it's like super crazy and then you take a vacation and then you get like sick and like everything happens then does that make sense are you are you me are you like are you me right now like that's that's like that's it's just do you feel like do you feel like there's like it's like um either people or forces pulling at your every limb yeah it's like don't know like ah which direction you you can even head in and it's over it becomes overwhelming Yes, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. I understand a hundred percent. And <laughs> are you like? Did you take a Netflix break? Did you watch some movies? Did you like? Yeah. Okay. Uh, for the first time in like a year, I went out on Saturday and I didn't go like the whole day. Like we went to I went to a pumpkin patch with a friend, but I didn't do any work for one day, um, and Good. that was. Literally, it's like a, probably the first time in like a year and a half. <laughs> I haven't been to. A... <laughs> yeah, and then um, so it felt weird. Um, oh my god, I haven't been to a pumpkin patch in years. What is it like now? Like what? Like when you go there as an adult? <laughs> yeah, the one in um, the one in uh, what's that city? Uh, we were went to the Half Moon Bay one, and it was cracking. It was like a pumpkin festival, but it was like uh, it was huge, like. I'm trying to think of something that's similar to this, like, on, like, the scale. I don't think I've ever been to a festival, period, like, on that scale since I was, like, in London, which is, like, for Carnival. Wow. <laughs> huge. Like, the Half Moon Bay Pumpkin Festival is, like, yeah, like, definitely check that out if you haven't. But it's, like, maybe a mile and a half, two miles stretch, it feels like. Are and you there, serious? Yeah, and it, it was thousands of people there. Um, and literally, like, all, like... Thousand, it felt it feels like thousands if not thousands like 500 like shops and stuff like that and restaurants in the street and it's just like really really cool but yeah and it's like yeah it was like weird me and my friend were just like super surprised and that was gonna be like the small little like yeah festival of like maybe 100 people or whatever but no it was huge it was like live whoa people take their pumpkins seriously i love this <laughs> Yeah, that was cool. Wow, did you ever get? Do you ever carve pumpkins, or is that is that not a thing you ever done? 
I haven't done it in the last few years. Um, I, I, I was, like, overseas for four years, and then and they don't celebrate Halloween like we do here. Um, and then this year is, like, my first year back being able to – well, second year back, technically. Last year, I, I was, like – yeah, I was uh, – I couldn't – I wasn't able to do it. But this year, I wanted to try and do it because, yeah, so it's kind of like – we went to the pumpkin festival thinking we would get a pumpkin. We didn't realize how crazy the place was, and we could buy pumpkins to buy. <laughs> Um, and we didn't, so by that time we like we were we walked all the way through and by the time we walked back the the, the festival had closed so because we had gotten there like at noon and it closed at five but it took that long it took us five hours just to get to the other side and so by the time we came back we already missed like they had already cleaned most of the stuff up so well it seemed like you had a good time still it's uh like what like I'm curious where were you overseas by the way like uh, what what countries were you in. Yeah, I had this like mid twenties crisis, and so I just uh, I left to uh, I, I visited over eighteen countries uh, over four years time, and I was backpacking. Um, so uh, it just kind of like wherever the wind took me, I went. But like uh, most of that time was spent in the UK. I was in London for uh, two and a half years. Uh, I was in France for four months in Sancerre. Uh I was in New York City for a year and a half, and then I was also like. I was just, like, in Italy for, like, three months. I was in Amsterdam for... Or, not Amsterdam. I was in Rotterdam uh, for a month. But, like, it, it was, like, I, India, like, everywhere. I was in a lot of the Middle Eastern, Turkey, Morocco, uh, Istanbul. Um, like, uh, just kind of... Yeah, I, I, can't, I never remember all the countries mm-hmm. <laughs> on the spot. But, like, Ireland, Spain, Portugal. Like, yeah, all of them. Belgium, like, Austria, Czech, Slo- Slovakia. Um uh, no, sorry, Czech for Prague was. Uh, uh, Germany, several times in Germany. I was there for about maybe um, maybe a month and a half total. Um, yeah, off the top of my head. But yeah, oh, I just know that it's 18 countries. <laughs> and you said you had like a mid-20s life crisis. Is that what propelled you to do this? Yeah, I had a mid-20s crisis when I was uh, 24. Six years old, uh, I was at a job that I had been at for a year and a half. I was organizing uh, in public policy for Silicon Valley. I was representing a lot of tech, tech leaders and, and kind of bringing them to the table, um, getting neighborhood leaders to the table and government leaders to the t- table and, like, helping them uh, kind of move the needle on policies that they all had um, a stake in. Um, and so uh, that was really exciting. I really loved that work. Um, but I, I felt like we were underutilizing technology. Um, to get people to discover each other, resources and all that stuff. And I felt like we were really doing a disservice to uh, the community members by, like, being like, oh, the only way you can talk to the tech executives and uh, the local government is if you go through us. Like, I felt like that was... um, I felt like that in the age of social media, like with Facebook and everything, they should be able to have a platform to be able to contact each other um, and leverage each other's resources and not have to rely on the middleman. Um, uh, and so, yeah, and so that's what I was thinking, and, and I remember trying to get, I, I actually created my first website, did a web, WordPress website, where um, uh, I, I called it the Housing Action Coalition, for some, like where people could just basically throw all the resources together, meet each other, uh, learn about the latest policy and news, and, and that started doing really well, and it took off. Um, after the first six months, like we started getting five thousand unique views a month, we were getting all these calls, people were showing up to events at like like way higher numbers because they found this through the website. It was just, uh, I just saw it really being impactful. However, 
working in the nonprofit industry or the public sector, uh, oftentimes technology is kind of, um, they're resistant to it, at least definitely in 2011. They, this was a foreign concept to them, and even if it was bringing them success, it was still um, change that they did not want to embrace. Um, and so I noticed that I was getting a lot of pushback on that, despite it meeting all our goals. And I, I thought about it, and I was like, well, my, my whole mission in life is to make an impact on this earth, and I can't make it if people are too scared to try new things to do it or forcing me to like kind of confine to like this little box and to make an impact from here when clearly that doesn't work so I don't know I just felt like kind of trapped um and like I felt like I couldn't really do all the things I wanted to do in that system and so I kind of uh had to make a really tough decision um and I decided to quit and when I quit I had to like um I had to cut the lease off my apartment because I couldn't pay rent anymore and then oh my god sell all my clothes and my all my furniture and I sold my car um and with that I was like okay um I was sleeping on my friend's couch um and I was going to try to figure things out because I was like I, I was like I couldn't be in a place where uh in like where like I felt like I was being ta- exploited mm. um and um exploited but then like also set up to fail um and oh, that's the worst yeah, and then so, but when I was, at, and but and so, I don't know, it just felt weird, and I just, I wanted to be more creative as well um, in my role and be able to be more innovative, and so when I was at my, on my parents' house, I just realized, well, I have somewhat of money, uh, let's, and we, we had plans to go to London for the Olympics, and so I was like, I think I'm just gonna, gonna go, but since I don't have to come back for work anymore, I'm just not gonna come back. <laughs> and, then, and so that's what happened, and that's what I did, um, went to London. And, um, yeah, they all left, and I stayed behind, and I decided to <laughs> keep going and see other places that I wanted to see. And, um, wow. And you were just off of your savings? Or, like, how did you, like, did you, like, do contract work and consulting while you were out there? Like, Yeah, I had enough money for what I thought was for two months. Uh, I, had, I, I think I brought, I think it was, like, $2,500 that I had with me. Mm-hmm. Uh, that lasted me. I, I had an aunt. Uh, my mom's immediate family lives in Rome, so I was like, okay stay with them for a little bit so that's what I did I kind of uh checked out all the countries that I wanted to see. at that t- at that time I think I did 10 countries in like three months and then I stayed at my aunt's house for about a couple extra months um and then um and then that's when I ran out of money and, then, um, and um when I was on that last leg it was about I think it was like the end of the uh, I had left in July I was like around November I decided okay I want to definitely live in London at that point because I knew London was like amazing and everything that I was looking for in a in a civilized place mm-hmm. <laughs> society and so like um, I, I moved to New York City just so I could work and then I could make it back to Europe so I, I worked uh, in New York City for about a year and a half um, and that's where I learned to code I learned to um, uh, I uh, oh, I started off like freelancing uh, towards the the last uh, six months that I was there. Uh, I kicked off my I, I quit my job then my full time job and then I just kind of just started um, building websites for people um, and doing graphic design and yeah and then um, kind of all things kind of came together at one point um, uh, an NGO my friend a friend that I had met. Um, at one of the jobs that I worked at, she her mom owned an NGO and they needed help with their social media and their websites. And so, um, yeah, so I kind of just like, uh, I was like, okay, cool. And it was it was through a bad spell. Like, uh, I got into a spat with my roommates. They tried to evict me. Um, it was like what? a... What? Pre- no, <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> like basically I was really we were best friends like this is the first time I've ever moved in with like someone that was like my really close friend but basically she did something that I felt was wrong so I was giving her the silent treatment and since she was on the lease and she was mad that I was giving her the silent treatment that she decided she was gonna evict me it was really stupid stuff oh man so that so that happened and then I lost my job uh, coincidentally also I was, was a, I was wrongfully fired for my job uh, again I found myself just being oh, uh, no. Yeah, but whatever. And then so luckily I was able to prove that. And so uh, I was able to get unemployment from that. Um, but then there's kind of like a, a, a string of like really bad things happen. As soon as I finished learning how to code, like and I, I put up my first website, like like everything just fell like fell apart. And so um, when I was trying to figure out what to do, my friend called me. She was like, Karma, she's like, well, you know, my mom lives in London. She has an NGO. She was like, you always wanted to go to London. You, I know you want to go back. It's like, now's the time to do it. Like, you have nothing else to lose. And I was like, I was like, right. I was like, I just don't have money. And then, <laughs> and then, and then, and then like, I was supposed to save and I didn't. But then luckily, because I was wrongfully fired, I got, um, I was able to collect money every month and then or every week, and so I was able to save on that. And then, um, and then because I was getting evicted, it worked out really nice. <laughs> now I had I didn't have to worry about a place to move, so I just sold like all my things again, and then I was able to build enough savings to go back to London. Um, and then uh, I was paying rent to, to stay in the house, but I was also working full time uh, for the NGO, and I was doing social media and, and building their website up. And then. Um, and I really fell in love with that the, that work that they were doing there. The, the, the work is the, they are called Hera UK. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's Hera stands for Her Equality Rights and Autonomy. And basically, they took uh, they accepted almost thirty women every year into who survived like domestic abuse or trafficking. Um, wow. And they put them through yeah they put them through business school um, for like it's like a it's partnered with Imperial College, which is one of the most uh, notable business schools in UK slash Europe. Um, uh, and so it's like, it's, they say college, we would call it a university, but it's just weird thing there. But anyways, and so like, um, um, they put these women through like a two week uh, business school program. They have all the professors come and volunteer. Um, I ended up doing courses for them on like how to learn HTML and CSS or how oh, to. Oh, that's awesome. Or like, yeah, how to do design and how to pick your brand and all that stuff. And then, anyways, they would like be paired off with a professional mentor for the year, and then that mentor would help them get their business off the ground. Um, so it was a really, really cool uh, program. Um, at that same time, um, I, I got a gig with Issa Rae. She's like the director for HBO director for Insecure, um, and also like the main actress um but she at that time this is before she got picked up for hbo she was she had she would she had been youtube famous for her series awkward black girl and she was kind of doing a a few different things and um she wanted to start a a a venture for uh creating a buzzfeed for women of color um uh and so or tailored and this is in london no uh, i was in london she was in beverly hills (laughs) and so i just worked remotely um yeah, so I would spend my day 9 a.m. to, like, 6 p.m. working at the NGO, and then 5 p.m., the overlap, would start my shift with the uh, <laughs> with Issa Rae's, um, like, startup in uh, L.A. And wow. And go until 2 a.m. <laughs> yeah. Wow, dude. And, like, day for, like, that was how I lived for, like, four months, five months before... Um, uh, I ended up also joining. I, I applied to grad school and I got in. So um, that was my schedule. Wow, that's not. Yeah. That's that's nuts. That's like yeah. that's intense. 
Could you yeah. think you could have kept going in the, at that pace, or were you like noticing that I was like, man, this is like I don't know if I don't know how long I can keep going at this. Um, at that time, I mean, granted, I was much younger, so. Ah <laughs> uh, yes, yes. So and it, it was work that I loved. It didn't feel like working. It felt like it was fun. I think it, where it became a problem is like trying to have a social life. Like I, I wasn't able to do that. Like it was. I remember it got really bad one time. Like even just like because I had a few friends in London that I had met from like that I'd known meeting in New York and all that stuff. And so when I would when like one of them would have their birthday and I'd have to bring my laptop with me. And we would be at the restaurant, and I'd bring my laptop with me on the table just in case, <laughs> um, like, Easter Race team, like, needed me for something. And, like, and then when they, if they, something happened, I would have to leave the table, like, the dinner table, and, like, go to the side, find, like, a, an outlet to plug in my laptop, and then just kind of, like, um, do something real fast. Like, I had to, I had to basically code, like, their... their um, uh, every publication that they made it, I formatted it and coded it for the website. And so, like, I, I would have to. <laughs> it was it was not a life to live, but it was. I th- I think if you if you asked me then, I would have felt like yeah, I could do this for a very long time. I just wouldn't have been able to do it not for the. I, I needed I needed to do it with more money. Hmm. Um, I wasn't making that much money, so I was in London where the dollar turned into 50 cents um when it by the time you converted it so uh the money i was making literally was like pittance oh my <laughs> like, god <laughs> oh my god that's cra- that's crazy that's yeah. oh my god so I, yeah i was basically working for half the half the amount and so yeah i didn't have to having to make it work but it was i loved it i loved it i was free yeah. Uh, I was in my my favorite city ever. Um, I was doing work that I loved doing, um, and I felt like I was making a meaningful difference. Um, yeah, I, I mean, let me ask I, you this: you, yeah. you you said earlier, like I, I um, you had, you left because you there was this inner side of you that wanted to make a like an impact in the world, and like my like I've um, I've I've had those thoughts too, and like. And I wonder, like, for you, what what was the seed of that, of that, like, you know, of that, you know, drive to do something that makes this this impact that leaves a mark? Like, where, where do you can you trace back to the moment where it was like, oh, this is what I want to do. This is what I need to do. Like, do you, can you can you can you uh, are you yes. able to? Yeah. Yes, I remember the source. <laughs> <laughs> Good. <laughs> uh, so I was nine years old. <laughs> And um, I had always like I don't I don't know I was like a really stupid child but like stupid but like too, little too smart like I remember thinking like oh my gosh I need to figure out what I need to do for the rest of my life so that way I could start early and like I wanted to find the thing that I felt like this would be my career and then so like I remember I gave myself to the age of ten to find my career so that way by high school like I can already or I can, by middle school I could start taking the classes and start doing it in high school and whatever so I was gonna have a career to commit to so uh, my dad took me to Haiti when I was like I tried different things I thought about a lot, a lot of different things and then when my dad took me to Haiti um but my dad's Haitian and uh we we I remember going I remember just really in culture shock like How old were you uh, I was nine years old I was, oh wow nine years old Haiti nine. from from and where were you going from to Haiti uh, we went to Port-au-Prince uh and then Okai and then we actually went back uh because my grandfather had died, I had never met him. So oh, after his funeral. Oh, my question is, where were you living before before uh, you went to Haiti? Like, what was? Yes, I'm born and raised San Jose. So oh, okay. Live- so you went from San Jose, California, to, to Haiti, and that was your first time. <laughs> yes, that's that interdimensional <laughs> travel. That's that's yeah. literal interdimensional <laughs> travel. Oh my god. Yeah, a really nice working class suburban part of like almost South San Jose. Um, so yeah, very. Um, 
privilege in that sense, like where, <laughs> yeah, I, I, yeah, going to Haiti was like, what the heck? It was literally, yeah, exactly, it was an alternate universe, the like dimension. And I, don't get me wrong, like this, this is my takeaway from the three weeks that I was there. When I came back, I felt like, uh, I remember feeling like, uh, Haiti definitely doesn't have like toilets and it's poor, but I remember feeling like, but it's happier than America. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was my two takeaways. I felt like Haiti would definitely need help structurally, like financially, um, in terms of like the infrastructure and everything there, but they were happier people. And I remember thinking, why is America not happy and we have all this stuff? Mm-hmm. Um, that was like my biggest takeaway from that as a kid. But second thing I took away from that was like, okay, uh, I was like, I want to help countries like that. Like, I was like, these people don't deserve to have to live in, um, in, in, where, in places where they don't have opportunities, like, or resources to make, to have a better quality of life. Like, I wanted to get empower, um, I wanted to empower, I wanted to give back to Haiti, and I wanted to be like, okay, I wanted Haiti to be uh, able to be a better place because the people had more control over the environment. And so when I started, I started kind of, that started my trajectory. And so since I was in San Jose, I was like, okay, well, what can I do now to help me get to that goal? So like, once I realized that's what I wanted to do, and that was like, again, nine, 10 years old. So then I was like, okay, I'm going to start being at, like, I'm going to start learning how to, um, uh, empower people or empower communities like that are disadvantaged starting with where I'm at and so like my neighborhood we were cool <laughs> there was nothing <laughs> there was like there, I, there wasn't really uh, I was very fortunate like we had like a really ideal childhood neighborhood um, but like in my schools and I would just be super active like when I went to high school I was like part of leadership I wanted to like um, oh actually yeah I had an interesting stories about high school too but like um i became super active and like okay like joining all these activities trying to figure out okay how how to represent the students and like and make sure that their needs are met i would do a whole bunch of different things um that i felt like i could that i felt like i was able to contribute to my surrounding community and make it a better place um i was doing like I was like, uh, what was I? I joined the Black City Union, and I was like, you know, putting on shows and cultural stuff, and then I was also involved in sports, and like, I don't know, I was just kind of like, I did everything. Um, I did the news over the microphone, like the speaker phones, <laughs> every Friday <laughs> to tell kids, like, to tell the classmates, like, what to think about, blah blah blah. But like, I just remember feeling doing that and being like, okay, if I can change, like, learning what I can change from my high school. If I can make a difference here, then I know that I'm closer to make being able to make a difference in Haiti. Because like it would not make sense for me to be like, oh, I'm just going to go straight to Haiti and like help them, and I don't know anything about how their their community works or all that kind of stuff. So I was like, I do know how the community works in San Jose, um, so I'm going to try and and do that here. Um, and then I saw how hard it was to do that here. I, I did the same thing, repeated the same pattern in college. Um, I was over involved in, in my community, took on a lot of leadership positions with d- different extracurricular groups. Um, and then, yeah, and then try to organize different types of groups of people to come together and to have real hard discuss- discussions. Like, so I went to Santa Clara University. I organized, we had a really, it was a really racially tense campus. Um, um, it, I mean, 
the diversity really sucked. Um, and then on top of that, it's a very, like, Richie type of school. And so you got people who did not know how to interact with <laughs> people of color at all. Mm-hmm. And it was just really, um, really hard for everyone, a lot of people. Um, so I would, like, host organized events where we would have panel discussions of, like, different people from different backgrounds. Um, and we had, and we would invite all these, like, white student groups to, like, come and, like, actually have, like, a hard discussion about why can't we get along on this campus and what do we need to do to better understand each other and like try to build empathy um so I would do a lot of that kind of stuff and we'd have a lot of it was really for me it felt really powerful because it was kind of getting straight to the point where a lot of people didn't really feel comfortable doing um and in high holding thing, these I always held my positions to like accountability like what impact am I actually making if the whole point of joining the multicultural center and being on the executive board is to make sure that people are more culturally aware, but at the same time, more culturally sensitive and more, and and more, um, and better and to have positive interactions versus just putting on random events, cultural events where they can come and enjoy the food and then leave. Like how do we get these people, diverse groups in the same room together and actually have facilitate discussions that are really hard that everybody's thinking, but everyone's afraid to ask and make it a safe space to do that. So like I would do that when I was at Santa Clara and then I just remember really loving that, and I just kind of just took that with me into, like, every role. I, I thought I was going to do civil law from that. I, I went to D.C. and learned about um, – I interned at a law firm there, and I was like, yeah, that's not going to work. And then <laughs> – <laughs> well, What was about yeah. the law firm that you were like, this is not going to work? That so It was a great law firm. I'm actually still working with them today. They've actually been one of the people that's been, like, uh, a huge uh, prospective customer for Device VR, but, like mm-hmm. – um, uh, interned at this it was a non-profit law firm in dc that represented low-income tenants um and against slumlords and so they would give these tenants who've been uh put in these housing conditions that are horrifying like horrifying like yeah. oh my gosh like um and i uh, that's a different story but like it was i felt like these houses were worse than the conditions i saw in a lot of places in haiti um and they were like state housing government housing um and uh, depressing but they would like basically um help these people like make sure that they get the fixes and and uh houses up to livable standards um by suing the landlord um or aka slumlords in this case and so um um yeah so i did that job i was interning there i was really close with the attorney that we reported to um really loved the work really loved the people uh unfortunately it's one of those jobs where you there's you overspend yourself, but there's very little return that you'll have cases that can go on for two or three years while these people are living. I had to go into these houses and report the violations. Oh my God. Like I, I remember the first house I went to, you talk about culture shock in Haiti. Like this was so bad. Cause I was like, I didn't think we had these types of places in the United States, let alone in the nation's capital. But I remember going into the first house, um, like just everything was broken. Like windows were broken. The whole street was like glass was all over the place. I was like, okay, this is weird. This was government housing. We knock on the door, they open it. And I see like, just the whole house is like covered in huge, gigantic roaches, like huge. And like, there's like uh, holes on the floor, like, like the, there's been termites that have been eating the floor. And so there's like holes everywhere. They had to put all their furniture over one spot to like cover the holes because it was also cold there. So like, uh, that was like their way of trying to like 
keep stuff from coming in, but it was just gross. So, like, everything, they didn't, basically, the whole family, there was, like, three kids. Um, the family didn't live, they didn't occupy the, the, the living room area because of all the roaches. The kitchen had all the dishes. They did still cook in there, but it was also just covered in roaches. And then they, the family was relegated to one room uh, upstairs where the roaches didn't go up to. Um, and they all just, like, stayed in that room. The heater didn't work. The air conditioner didn't work. And if you know anything about D.C. weather, like, that's that's horrifying. Um, and they all just kind of, like, stayed on, like, they all slept on the same bed. And then they would just, like, watch a TV. And they just, that was their thing. And, like, you could tell, like, the, the parents, they just, like, dazed. They were, like, tired. Like, it was just, like, it was just really weird. It was just, like, this was, like, this was unhealthy in a different direction. Like, it was was scary it was like looking at zombies living in a house and that's just how they've been and then it would take years to see justice for them it would take years because that's how when you go through the legal process of trying to get things happening the the slumlords can go through can do whatever they want to uh kind of delay the process and delay it they don't have to show up they can xyz whatever it's just very slow justice um and that was a government housing and the way that they got away from like not calling pest control or not um, fixing stuff was basically they said it was the the tenant's fault that there was roaches in the house. And so because of that, they were saying that was their defense as to why they're not going to cover getting pest control. And that to me was like stupid. Like, but anyways, um, so yeah, so knowing like, so I I knew I couldn't do that because there was so many more stories like that where you had like families using the, putting this oven open every night just for heat, like, and like, you know, that's like carbon monoxide, but like there's four kids, so like it's like, it's like, it was just really, really bad conditions. It was an older woman, she had like three cats just to eat all the termites that were, literally had termites so, so long, she was in that housing condition for so long that her, when you go to the bathroom, the whole floor just rocked. And, like, there was a hole also, and I'm like, oh, my gosh, I can't imagine going to this bathroom at 3 a.m. at night and then, like, not, like, accidentally falling through. And she was, like, an older lady. But, eh, anyways, it was just, like, I I think when you have these clients and then you know what living conditions they're going through and you know that the process could be two to three years and maybe it may not see justice, like, that was not going to work for me. Um, Like, I needed something where I could have an immediate impact, like, like, like now, I wanted to be able to like I see you. You need help. I want to help you. I want to see the results. Like I want it to help right now. <laughs> Man, that's yeah. crazy. I can see myself. I can see myself getting depressed after a while in that sort of environment and that bombardment of like, of like const of like. And you know, the, and the other realization is that like, man, this could be me. <laughs> yeah. And that and this is or this is gonna be me. Like you know, thirty, forty years from now, like nothing's guaranteed in life for me. So like. You know, I have to be aware that, like, you know, this is the system that you, maybe you and I might might inherit. You know, yeah. So Definitely. that's crazy. Yeah, my biggest. I, I would just say at that point, move to Europe or some other country because <laughs> being, if you don't have money in America, if you're poor in America, the it's it's basically I feel like it's synonymous with hell. Um, like, like, like I said, the the difference I can see, like, yes, Haiti is poor, but the people are happy. They may do with what they do. They don't know any better. Like, they they make it work, and there there's a lot of family. There's a lot of community there. So it's like something from that social ex- experience that just makes it kind of um, heart happy. Whereas I feel like here, when you're when you're broke and you're poor, most people don't have a family to go to. People don't want to be around them. There's no community. So not only you're poor and you're out on the street in like horrible conditions, um, but you're also isolated, like so, like socially. So you you don't get the fulfillment that like 
your spirit needs to like stay positive the other you actually end up losing your brain right you end up losing your mind a little bit like you, you see a lot of these homeless people here who have a lot of mental health issues or are angry all the time or um and just like that kind of stuff and that's that's what happens i feel like it's like the decay of the spirit in in america when you're like poor yeah um, it's tough because it's like um no, I debate in my head whether whether it's it's easier to um, just move, go somewhere else, or like stick stick it out and fight <laughs> and see yeah. and see if there's like you know because there I like to think um, of the American democratic system as sort of like a, a pressure pot or like a like a kettle with a like a and and it's sort of like um, and it's sort of what happens is is the culture reaches a tipping point of anger of rage of like outrage over something and and then the and so the democracy or the system releases releases some steam i.e voting obama in um and 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 so like or or i.e voting trump in you know it's like it's like it it it, it, wherever the 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 sort of this like cultural pendulum seems to swing it, it seems like the system tries to like correct some way or some way to appease that 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 mass culture and so it's it's something that i'm like where i i I, i'm i'm caught and something that i'm cognizant of and it makes me realize something it's like um that that i think goes back to you know us having this conversation in the first place was like was like in the grand scheme of things you know, like what is this who is this podcast for when when i was you know i was listening to this conversation that we had earlier like um i'm thinking by the way we should probably i'm thinking i was actually debating just now whether we should just keep going with cuz actually like the thing started recording at 2 minutes <laughs> so, so okay. even so even like we just been like going off and it's been amazing talking to you so i'm thinking maybe we could just keep going um and see where this takes us um so like so like so for context for anybody who's listening like we've um we've Kurama and i did a podcast earlier um where you know i struggled with like a lot of things that i brought up and i still am um, and it sort of reminds me of like, uh, it, it, it sort of had me have this conversation in my head. I'm like, well, why am I doing this podcast in the first place? <laughs> you know, who am I doing this for? Um, and, you know, I went, I, came, I went back to like, you know, the, the, the inception of this whole thing. And I realized, oh, yeah, I, I, know, who, I know who this is for. And, and, and so what I'm saying is that like, Everything uh, I want to put out with this podcast, I want to do it in a way where, like, I'm cognizant of an audience that's going to be listening to this in the future. Like, like the question that I wanted to ask, that I asked myself when I started this whole like experiment, this whole like conversations with like amazing people like yourself, was like, in the in the future, twenty years from now, thirty years from now, like people are going to wonder, you know. What were they thinking, those those earlier people, you know, when they were building those things, their dreams and their hopes out there in this virtual reality industry? Like, what were they thinking? What were what were they really thinking? You know, and not necessarily like so much like what were the thoughts on the trending technology, but like, you know, what human side can we reveal? Because like I think about like I look back at documentaries. One of them that like really impacted me was um, Ken Burns's Vietnam 
Um, and it was so good at like depicting the human side of every side of the war. And um, I realized that I was like, that's that's universal. That's that's stuff that like, yeah, again, 30 years from now, people are going to look back and be like, oh, wow, you know, that's me. It's, it's this thing. This is humanity shining, shining a mirror back at us again. Um, and so and so with that being said, like, yeah, I, I want to frame this conversation in a way where like where I where you and I can go back like I'm 30 years old right now. At the age of 50, I'm going to come back to this conversation and I'm going to like remember. <laughs> I'm going to be like, I'm going to be like, I'm, I'm going to like, yeah, I'm going to remember and like be like, uh, yeah, what was I thinking? I'm going to go back to this. Um, and so and so this is sort of like where I want to start things off with like with like keeping that in mind, like, you know, what message would you want to send to your future self, Clorama? <laughs> 20 years, you know, like. Yeah, 20 years from now, uh, yeah, I'll be 50. I'm not sure how old you'll be. Maybe like 35 or something. And and you'll look back and you'll be like, um, you know, yeah, what what was I thinking? Like, if you could send a message to yourself in the future, like, what would you you say to yourself? You know, Uh, Clorama listening 20 years. (laughs) Don't fuck it up. (laughs) (laughs) No, I'm just kidding. But keep it up. I'll just say keep it up. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> perfect I hope, I hope, yeah i hope she's giving it up but yeah that's awesome yes um because yeah and, and and that's sort of like the spirit of like what i want to capture is just like you know yep people being people themselves because um, i think because i think another thing is that like um i i, I we tend to over focus on the on the on the products and even like the 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 technology but like but you know a lot of um, backing a product is also backing the person behind it, um, and and in that in and in and in that vein, I, that's sort of my my mission is to like, you know, shine a light on you as a person. I think, and and so in that with that being said, um, what I want to ask you is, um, where did that spark for like virtual reality first like start for you like? Like, what was that like? And, and was it like immediately? Did you immediately realize that, oh, okay, this is it, you know, or, or was it a more gradual thing for you? Yeah. Uh, I just, thank you. I just want to say, appreciate that. that I really appreciate, those, that appreciate your sentiment and that the kind intention. I, I love that. Um, but yeah. Um, yeah. So I think when it came to VR, it was when I did my, when I started grad school, um, I was trying to figure out again, like I'm one of those people, I think I'm just like very strategic. I, I like to think ahead. So I knew that we would have a thesis to, to do. And I was kind of from day one trying to figure out, okay, well, what would I want to spend my year researching? Um, Cause we, we technically wasn't assigned to us yet. We wouldn't have to start working out on it until like towards the end of the year. But I was just like, I just wanted to like get a jump start on like, if I have one thesis to take away, like what would I do? So I remember it was, it was I was trying to figure that out and then of course very very early on to the program I was super naive having been a technologist for like two almost two years at that point like doing websites and coding and all that kind of stuff I I was super confident in my skill set particularly with client working with clients who were like usually happy when I was when I was done with the project so I had had a high self-confidence about my skills uh, and what I was technically capable of Um, so when I came into the program about two weeks in I got like a harsh like wake-up call with one of the teacher's assistants who made it very clear they had no faith in my technical capabilities and he kept 
like dismissing me whenever I like in just different passive ways like um for our first project they were supposed to pair designers with like developers and like uh and since we didn't have that many developers it was like okay and he and I remember like I told him that was like, technical and whatever but I remember he still paired me with a developer and I'm being like okay but we both know how to code <laughs> So, like, wouldn't I be more useful on a team with someone who's a designer? And on top of that, like, the person he paired me with was actually a back-end engineer, and the, the coding we were working with was front-end. So it was like I was technically would be the person helping him, but they they felt like he would be – they wanted me to be the ideas person and him to be the person that builds the thing. And I remember being like, wait, why – but I could do both. And I just remember being like, why are you wasting my, my, my resource? So I, I felt like that. Um, and then like, and then of course he said some very explicit things. Like when I was telling him, we, me and that guy ended up like, uh, we were very close friends. One of our best, like he's one of my best friends from that course, but we had a disagreement about the project and how we wanted to go. So we ended up, um, kind of, um, not, we kind of ended up working on the project solo. So when I was talking to the teacher's assistant, I was like, okay, this is what I want to do. This is what I have the vision for it. Um, and this is what I want to build. And the teacher's assistant was like, kind of like, okay, it was a technical assistant to, for everyone on the project because we're, we're learning with a new program. It was Max MSP. I don't know if he, anyone knows that. But yeah. Um, and he was just kind of like, okay, well, uh, this is going to be way too complicated. So, and I was like, oh, it's, don't worry. I was like, I'm American. I got this. <laughs> I'm not afraid of complicated. <laughs> and I, I made it, I was like, I made it a joke, right? And then he turned and he was like, well, I'm afraid of complicated for you. And I was like, oh, okay. I was like, well, why? And I was like, so stupid because I didn't get it. <laughs> but like, uh, when I was like talking to my friends later, and like it kind of hit me. Wait, because uh, he was like, I, I, he's like, I can't help you. I, I don't think I'll be able to help you at this. And I was like, well, I was like, I don't think it's impossible. I was like, I'm pretty sure, like, because I wanted to do something where I like hack a connect and like basically have it um, uh, cord- with our with our movements, have it. Um, change the a painting around but the painting would be like a digital projection so like i was like i can just make some animations with the painting that are like pre preset and then just use different type of motions to like trigger what animations play so for me it was very like plug and play it was just like i just needed to figure out how to put it together but for him he was like it's going to be too complicated for you so i was like okay well he wasn't really helpful so i ended up having to work on this and he was ignoring me like i would try to ask for help for different things and he was just kind of like made it it was just like very obnoxious things that he would do that like um to avoid uh helping me or giving me the same attention that he was giving my peers uh for helping them get their projects technically working um and so uh i decided okay well if you're not going to help me i don't need you <laughs> so and so i just basically just made my life um that cl- that the studio and i was able to the day that we had to debut the project for uh the program director uh, i was the only one in the class that was able to get my pro- class my project working without having to fake it like for the live demo um, and uh, I remember being really proud about that because everybody else had like I, I remember thinking it was like a blessing in disguise because I didn't have to rely on the technical director I ended up learning more about the program um, and how to work with it and oh sorry this did not answer your question but <laughs> sorry going back to your source but like basically that that whole uh, that whole experience with that first project made me made it very clear to me that he had he was either in my head I thought he was stereotyping me uh that he didn't think I was capable and I knew that 
when I saw that this was a real thing, uh, and I've, I've had this experience before a lot of times, but I have never had that experience actually being confident about my skill set before. I always kind of like, okay, well, maybe they're right because they're an expert. Um, so in this this case, it was actually the opposite. My confidence was up. And so um, when I noticed that that was happening, I was like, okay, there's something wrong with them. It's not it's not me. And I know that it's not true what they believe about me. Um, or And in and the fact that I'm getting treated like, like a second-class student was not fair and I feel like okay this has to be a stereotyping issue and so I knew that with my thesis I wanted to solve for stereotyping because I was like if this is going to be a huge problem and I'm only going into tech and it's supposed to get that much more worse like I want to solve this problem so I knew that that was going to be my thesis project was going to be like how do I solve for stereotyping in like the workplace or like whatever um and then with research when you when we finally got assigned to start the project um uh, you have to spend the first few months researching it before you can come up with a solution. After I did like intense research, I, I saw the like uh, like basically I didn't realize this was actual psychological phenomenon that actually started with at a school um, like it was actually the whole t- term of like microaggressions and unconscious bias and uh, all those psychological terms basically describing this phenomenon of how people perceive each other um, and treat each other as a result. Um, was coined particularly because African-American students were going to psychologists at Harvard in 1965. Um, I forget what year, somewhere in the 1960s. And he noticed that there was a pattern. They were all, like, basically um, uh, starting to have mental health issues because of the microaggressions that they were getting on campus. But they didn't know. They, this wasn't there wasn't t- coined microaggressions. He ended up coining it. But it's basically these offenses are getting treated differently or being perceived to be not as smart or not as capable. And then like, and have, and that was taken a toll. And once he realized that this was a thing happening, he coined the term microaggressions. Um, this is like at Harvard, I think. <laughs> or, yeah, it was at Harvard. Um, so like, um, and then that's kind of like started their whole research process around this. And so... Um, so yeah, so I knew that I wanted to explore that. And then how I found VR was literally, like I said, it was, uh, as an interaction designer, you're not allowed to come up with a solution in my course, uh, unless you know what the problem is and you've thoroughly researched it and the research 100% leads you to the solution. Like you don't like come up with it. Um, like that's like a more egotistical sound. And this is the hardest part about being a designer is like a lot of times people want to come up with it. Like I know the solution for this without doing any of the research, which I feel like is 95% of what diversity efforts are. Um, I would say 99% of them. (laughs) Um, And so I was forced to have to research it thoroughly and try out different ideas thoroughly. And until I did a whole bunch of trial and error over those few months, before I could finally come up with a solution, I knew that, okay, it has to be an immersive experience in order to, uh, for perspective taking and all that stuff. And it also has to be... um, something that you can collect data on because that's what the game was missing when it comes to behavioral data. There's no way to hold people accountable. If I say this person is being XYZ to me, no one would believe me or no one, and that's what was happening. People are like, the professors were friends with them. They're like, well, how do you know you're not just making it up? How do you know blah, blah, blah? Maybe you're being oversensitive or paranoid. And I was like, well, I've never been paranoid or oversensitive my whole life before <laughs> interacting with this person. <laughs> like, like, why would that start now? And then on top of that, it, like again, when you start getting that kind of people doubting your judgment you start to over time you start to question yourself and then it's kind of leads to gaslighting um and so which is horrifying and that's it's a real thing and so like i i just feel like people don't deserve this and so i was like there needs to be a way for us to collect data on this so that way um 
anytime this stuff is doubted, you have the like technological or like proof, the numbers to say this is what happened. So we already got the science piece. I wanted to be able to bring the numbers to it. And then at the same time, I knew that it would have to be engaging because nobody wants to do a diversity training where they just feel bad about their lives, <laughs> bad about themselves and shame and whatever. So I have to make this an engaging or positive experience and turn that turn that concept on its head. And then I have to also uh, make it imp- impactful, like it actually has to be effective. Um, and that required in the most effective way to do that. I knew via VR was the answer for it. Um, the research kind of pointed me there. Um, and then when I saw, when I started Googling about VR, I saw that uh, there was articles, this is 2015, there was articles that Mark Zuckerberg or Facebook bought Oculus and they were releasing the DK2 and I was like, oh my gosh, I have to get my hands on the DK2. I know this is a solution because um, I was originally going to do like a projection mapping, like have people, different people with different uh, life, lifestyles or different personalities like walk around London with a GoPro on their head and then like <laughs> on both like and then uh, be able to like projection map that into a room so like the people from the exhibit or whatever that are coming to see this project they can just go into this room they'd see diff- a row of different types of shoes they would be like tennis shoes, high, high heels business shoes, whatever um, and then when you put on one of those shoes like it would be a sensor that would trigger a video that would project project this person, you and the first person of this person's view on each of the walls, and so you were immersed that way. So then when I learned that virtual reality was a thing and that the headsets were out when I was Googling, um, and I was like, oh my gosh, I have to get a DK too. This is so much more easier versus like doing all of that. I could just like create an experience within the headset and then so like uh, of somebody else's lifestyle or whatever. Um, and so, yeah, so turns out super fatefully lucky. Um, my studio happened to have a DK2 collecting dust and like on the corner. And so like uh, when I was telling the, the uh, we had a new course director at that time and she was great. I, I was able to trust her and she kind of was like very supportive. And I, I was just telling her, I was like, hey, I was like, I think I want to do something with VR. She was like, oh, I think they have a headset. Um uh, they, they just got a headset like a month ago or something like that, but nobody's been able to get it to work. I was like, oh my gosh, I have to check it out. Is this the DK2? She's like, yeah. So I checked it out and I was like, okay. And then so I was really excited to do, work with it and just to try it out. I didn't know how far I was going to get. I didn't know if I liked VR. I never really tried VR at that point. I just knew that this was a solution to the problem from what I was coming coming for my, my project. And um, again, when I was telling the technical assistant who ordered the TK2 and apparently he wasn't able to get it to work, I was like, I want to work with this. And he was like, look, you shouldn't work with it. You only have four months left on your project. You're not going to be able to get it to work. Like, trust me. He's like, I've tried. Um, so like, he was like, I haven't been able to get it to work. I won't be able to help you. And I was like, no, no, I really, he's like, well, why does it have to be VR? Like, why does it? And I was like, no, because my research says like, it has to be an immersive solution. Like, da, da, da. And he was like, he's like, I just don't think it has to be VR. I think you could do something else. And I was like, so literally for a whole hour, it was like, he was lecturing me. It was a different technical assistant, but like, um, that like, I should just avoid it and not worry about it. And I'm like, whatever. And then I was like, no, I have to do it. I just have to try. And he was just like, okay, well, don't ask me for help because I, I won't be able to help you. And I was like, okay. I was like, I've been used to it at this point this year. None of you have helped me for any of my projects. <laughs> so, like, that's totally fine. It's so, like, so, like, um, what? I, I, I took it. I, I um, tried to find a PC in this in the building. I couldn't, I, I tried to get on it working on a PC, but then I saw that you could technically still get it to work with the Mac with the runtime 5.0. So, I was able to do that. I found YouTube videos that were like, build your first VR experience in like 11 minutes. And, like, they totally worked for me. I was able to get working. And then from there, I just started building the game 
Um, and yeah, for four months later, I was able to, to debut it at the exhibition. Um, and yeah, <laughs> and that's kind of started my, my journey. I, I don't think I was, I was in love with it as a solution and I really liked VR, but I, I, I it wasn't my first time trying VR. wasn't until probably a year after that, uh, at the startup that I was working at that also had a DK too in London. Um, and so I would just play with it after work and I started like, uh, a hobbyist group, um, a hobby group like uh, like I was like if anybody in this job wants to learn how to do VR like I'm happy to do a workshop around Unity 3D and all that stuff so I would do that and then we'd meet up every so often um, and, like play with a VR headset and then from there like I said I didn't think it was a career I was in London like no, there was nobody that really did it in London it wasn't really a thing um, but the startup that I worked at there failed um, and then so I kind of um, uh, I kind of I, I moved to France and uh, I was there for four months staying at a friend's house for free and I was like figuring my life out um, and I put job applications everywhere Brexit happened I was like okay if Brexit's happening I definitely don't want to go back to London <laughs> not now at least um, and so uh, I got job offers in, in Silicon Valley and so uh, and I got accepted to uh, AR VR Academy here so I decided to come back home and take the class and then see see if I can kind of pursue that route but I was a UXer um, by day interaction designer so I, w- I would work as a UX practitioner at different jobs but I would just do VR stuff on the side um, when I did the VR academy I realized I was far ahead of the game than I thought uh, and it, it was a, VR was a thing here um, and uh, the community was huge and then I felt like I was like one of the very few people that actually knew how to 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 work with it develop it and the, the, cl- the course that I was in it was very clear that the professor didn't know what she would doing and like I felt like I knew more than her and that it, it was very clear she was learning on it and so I was trying to I had to like teach the, the classmates like here's a trick to get around this and here's blah 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 so it really built my confidence to realize I was like oh I'm, I'm kind of uh I if I continue with this like I have a I have a good advantage to like setting myself up for success in this field and so um I mean that didn't really work out so much, but, mm-hmm. but it but it did work out in a, in a, in my own way, in, in the sense that I got funding from uh, Oculus Launchpad when I when I signed up. I was working full time at Code for America, but um, I, I was able to do this project on the side, and I, I met Jessica Outlaw. Um, who's an experienced researcher, and she was really interested in doing bias training with teaching. And I had done, I had spent the last few years doing uh, side projects for different institutions. Um, so, like University of College of London, London Neuropsychology Clinic, they all hit me up. Uh, they hit me up and say, basically saw my work online, and they said, "Could you build some bias virtual reality projects for um, this thing?" And they just supplied me with all the research, and we'd figure out a solution, and then I would build it for them. Um, and then they exhibit it at some conference or. Um, um, event and so, anyways, uh, participated in Oculus Launchpad, did the bias training for teach for the classroom, um, and uh, we ended up winning funding. Um, and so, at that same time, my fellowship with Code for America ended. So, uh, decided to go hard on it full time and, and put, build a side up around it. Nice. nice. Um, yeah. Wow. Okay. So, let me ask you this: How do you? Um, and and this is something I'm. Uh, it's an ongoing struggle for me with this podcast. Is like, how vulnerable do I want people to be here, and how vulnerable do you do I feel like being? Because I I think it's like, for me, what I what I tend to do is that I uh, I allow myself to place myself in a place of vulnerability, uh, in 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 sort of, in a way. Um, giving you the chance to perhaps also embrace that like you know so that the audience can then be like oh wow these people are human 
And so, but I'm also like, but I, but I, but I'm what I'm worried or what I'm arguing in my head with is like, well, you know, like how much vulnerability do you want to give people? Like, I don't want to like, you know, I, it, it doesn't, it, I don't know. It doesn't help if I pour everything out here. I don't know. I don't know. But, but here's what I'm trying to get at here is, um, I've met so many people, um, just, in the VR industry and surrounding the VR industry with imposter syndrome. Mm. It's just this like ongoing pattern where it's everywhere and it's people you would have never imagined who carry the deepest, like craziest, like ball and chain sort of like the type of imposter syndrome, you know? And that even includes me. Like I've, I've stopped myself from doing a lot of cool things um because of imposter syndrome and like social anxiety and just like my own bullshit and it sucks and mm-hmm. it's like but it's but it's but it's also like uh, it feels like it's not addressed or people don't talk about it because it's scary because it's like oh it's admitting that you have this like this thing that is real that you know might be perceived as a weakness but it's but it is what it is and i wonder like if you have dealt with it how you dealt with it um and like uh and yeah and and what are your thoughts on imposter syndrome yeah um i think my thoughts are imposter syndrome i I just started feeling it recently that i've got this new opportunity that fell on my lap um and for the first time ever literally as of one week ago uh, i feel like i understand what imposter syndrome means now Uh, i never got it before Um, and that was only because I, I, I think I associated imposter syndrome. I think what I what I in this last week what I realized where I think it, it comes down to is that you, there's a lot of times we hold certain things in prestige or we put it on a pedestal, certain titles, certain statuses, or certain types of work. And so when we put it on a pedestal or we put it on a status and we have this self perception that you know we, we operate at a different level, then when we finally get thrown into that that role. Um, it's really hard. There's like this mismatch where our brain has perceived it to be of this stature and we know ourselves to be of this stature. There's no way that they can be mixed, but that's an illusion, right? It's uh, that, that thing was never up on that stature. We just put it up there. And so by assigning it at that certain value, we kind of um, uh, now have to feel like, okay, well, how do I get my, my worth up there? Um, that's what I've, I feel like I'm, I'm defining it as for what I've been experiencing recently. But like of all, all up until before last week, if you think I didn't ask me this question before last week, um, I, I think I think all the stuff that I've done, I didn't feel like it was a big deal. <laughs> I've never felt like anything I've done was a big deal at all. In fact, I was and as I was doing it, people were shunning me or people were making it seem like I was you know, a lost person or like whatever. I, if anything, I felt crazy doing all the stuff that I was doing, wasting my time on using VR for bias training. Like no one was doing it at the time. So it was too crazy of an idea for my, my, my administrators to take seriously or like anything that I've done, like even the traveling thing. When I was traveling, like I was like literally backpacking. It was not something to be prideful of. <laughs> Like, it's easy to take a picture of a beautiful view and, like, put it on Facebook and everyone thinks you're living the life. But, like, I was, like, in hostels where, like, people were snoring and it smelled. And, like, <laughs> like I'm trying to figure out, like, okay, where I'm going to, like, uh, get to, like, I'm paying $11 for a megabus to get to another country. Like, none of it, it was glamorous in anything that I've done. None of it has been glamorous. Um, so, as a result, I never felt imposter syndrome. I almost felt like I, I would be embarrassed to talk about it sometimes. They're like, 
I, I would like be surprised when people thought it was something a big deal. Um, but yeah, and then I got an opportunity that I've always associated as like a mountaintop dream that I never thought I could get, but I've always been like, oh, that's how I would like, that would be something that I would love to shoot for, but I never thought would technically be available to me and it became available to me and it actually came available to me a month ago, but I, I'm so in denial of it, um, that it didn't start hitting me until a week ago. <laughs> um, and so like, and then when it hit me, I'm like, oh my gosh, like I felt like all those feelings that people describe, like you feel like I'm, I don't think I'm going to be, I don't think, I think they chose the wrong person. I don't think they, I think they made a mistake or I wonder why, like, I feel like I'm going to get fired, like, the first, like, day or, like, whatever, like, and they're not going to, you know, like, it's just, and that's because, and the only difference I could see with this position and, like, the, my all my past stuff is that I've always associated this opportunity with, like, status um, that was unachievable by me. So now it's like, oh, I have to catch my brain up to, to believe that this is something that's, um, but I, I don't know. Uh, but I guess so, yeah. I, I, I never dealt with it before because it was never, if anything, I was humbled. It was always never an easy journey. It was never glamorous in anything that I've done. So I think that's why I, 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 I was, um, I didn't really have, ever feel that. That makes sense. Yeah. And and so, like, what are your, um, how are you dealing with it now? <laughs> like, what are your ways to, like, you know, um, wa- waddle through this swamp of imposter syndrome today like what's your what are your mechanisms your, me- yeah. your strategies and I'm, I'm strategizing now <laughs> I'm still that's good that's good no, no, this is a completely new feeling I, I don't know if this is how this is how you feel like uh, then i i super empathize it's it's real um i i'm trying to do as much as i can to rem like Sent like first of all, I'm trying to change my perception of it um, because I feel like that again I have associated with a certain type of prestige or like uh, pedestal, and I'm trying to number one bring that down to real life, um, and then number two I'm trying to remind myself like looking back and all these like okay I did accomplish this and this is a big deal and da 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 and karma like like this is what I'm capable of and then so. I'm trying to do a better job of remembering that um, actively every day. And I'm also doing a, a, I think the third piece of it for me and for my mental health is like to like, I'm spending the next month, like November is going to be my month of just creating things. Um, I haven't been able to create this last few months after we pushed a product to, to launch on the store. I've been doing everything except for working on the product. Um, and that's really hurt me a lot, I think. Um, and so I think what I planned for the month of November, I'm going to finish wrapping things up um, uh, in terms of like I'm not doing any more like, you know, conferences or whatever and all that kind of stuff, like things that take me out of the product zone. But the, not the month of November, I'm just going to build things every single day. Mm-hmm. And then I, if I can attach my confidence to remember that I am someone that builds things and I'm, and I'm really good at it and I could do, I can conquer all this stuff, then I, if I could keep putting myself through that kind of stuff and then like coming out the other end, then that's how I build my confidence again um, and build my self-esteem. And I, and I think that's what I'm going to look at doing. And then also just you know, setting better boundaries um, with the things that come my way and that try to pull me thin or stretch me in different directions. I'm just, I've been doing a great job of saying no to a lot of things the last couple of weeks because I need to like center myself and, and get back to myself. And um, yeah, and try to just kind of go back to my roots of just being that like lowly person in a cafe, just like creating random things like or like working on, on my laptop and then like just building things. And I, I feel like if I could 
do that for at least a month and I'm gonna probably take December to travel then uh, to, to get to myself spiritually then I, I hopefully hopefully I'll be in better position to um, manage it <laughs> well I'll be crossing my fingers for you and um, and um, yes and I believe in you um, that's why I have um, another question for you, and it's, it's it's and these are tough questions because I like you and I want you to succeed. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> this is why I ask the hard questions because yeah, I want to yeah. make sure you're you're successful. Um, so, what are your how how are and this is something that like founders, um, some of the most intelligent people I've met on this planet struggle day to day with, and it's mm. it's a, it's a very difficult question, which is like. How do you balance your product development goals with your marketing? Like, you know, where do you where, when do you know when to like pull the marketing lever and when to pull on the product and, and pull push back on the product product development lever? Like, this yeah. is like a, a, a dynamic that is that is a hard balancing act for anyone anyone to do. And so, like, I wonder, like, you know, what is your the thought process in your mind when it comes to like doing these two things? Yeah, so uh, sorry, I, I say marketing as just because that I feel like is the thing that I hated the most that was outside of the product development. <laughs> but it's it's more than just marketing. Obviously, it's the legal stuff, it's the accounting stuff, it's the getting trying to find good talent um, and and trying to and onboarding them, and then all of a sudden it doesn't work out, and so you just wasted all that time, and then you're bringing new people, and it's the the phone calls of sales, the people who call you who are interested in their product but want to learn more, and then because they want to try it, you have to go to them to demo it to them because they don't have a VR headset, and so like it's and then it's like the conferences and of course the marketing and yes and all that stuff, but it's I think it's like a, it's a plethora, it's the pitch decks, it's investors, it's like it's like all it's so much for one person. And I think that's where I struggled the most is being just one person and not being able to find that team that could that understands how bias works and understands how uh, VR works and how the product works in relation to that and why it's different from its competitors uh, in the market. Um, and then on top of that, get them up to speed on that. And then like, like it's been, it's a really, it was it's such a unique product that um, it's not, it's not easy to just find anyone with experience in this field. Like it's really new research and it's really new um, stuff. So you have to, it's, there's a lot of onboarding that goes into it. Um, and then on top of that, trying to raise funding because uh, try to raise, to try to fundraise because I was I was still running on Oculus funds and that was only so much and so um, knowing that my runway was going to be very short it's how do I maximize now I have three months before my runway is in danger like how do I maximize this amount of time to make sure that I have money coming in so when you have that goal um, by three months I want to be able to have XYZ amount of money coming in so that way my runway is extended um product has to go like product is not product has to be sacrificed you have i have enough of a product i spent the last four months of the the thing just working on the product and launching it now i have to make sure it sells or i have to make sure that it brings me a return and so i spent the summer um doing everything that i could do uh across all those different channels to try and see if any of them would bear fruit um so that way i wouldn't have to worry about my runway for the rest of the year have you found a successful channel thus far? Um, 
Yeah, so we found one. Um, Good. <laughs> um, and this is a, a, a product that we're working with, uh, Portico.ai. It's a startup, and um, they they do uh, AI technology with vir- virtual reality training um, and with HP, HP Asteroid Bias Training. So me and Portico are teaming up, and we're delivering something for them on November 5th, and that was a, that was enough money to like keep me going. Um, and I have, a, but the problem is I've had also because we had we did a really good job with marketing. We had, uh, and that's really exciting. Thank God this was like a hot buzz t- topic. Starbucks thing happened and whatever. So we got a lot of calls um, from a lot of different publications or people wanting to to talk about this work. And so as a result, we got a lot of leads. We had people calling us, so I didn't have to do too much sales stuff like. I was getting emails almost on a daily basis, if not every other day, um, from different companies who wanted a phone call and wanted to learn more and wanted a sales quote and wanted to see how they can fit something in or whatever. So um, there's a dance that you have to do with each of them. I was learning as I was going along as well. I didn't know that there was a dance. I'm a very straight – as a person who – Builds. <laughs> I'm just. I'm very straight to the point. Okay, you want this? This is how much. Da, 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 blah blah blah. Okay, great. But apparently, you're not supposed to do that <laughs> when you're talking to clients. It's actually a longer dance. And I, I was really grateful. I had mentors um, who reached out to me and 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 um, helped me navigate this whole sales dance and marketing dance and how to speak to the investors in their language. Like, what's the culture of that? Like, I just thought like, hey, you like the product, you give me money. But no, it's also like how you're saying earlier. It's about you. They need to invest in you, and so. It's like building this relationship with them and you help them and then they help you. And I'm like, okay, like this is all stuff that uh, I had to learn as I was uh, going, building the plane. Um, But, um, and so that's, I think after a while that takes a toll on you, um, especially when it becomes nonstop and, um, and, and you're only a team of one at that point. Uh, And so, I mean, I did have friends like who were helping me with accounting. I had another friend who's a lawyer who's been helping me with the legal stuff. Um, And then I had like great advisors who were helping me navigate anytime a new thing came up, I can call them and be like, okay, how do I talk to this person? Or what what am I supposed to say? Um, But, yeah, sorry. What was it? What was the question again? No, this is good. I love I love your answer. No, this is a yeah. good like uh, sort of um, listening to your thought process and balancing yeah. um, the product development versus marketing. And like, I wonder. This leads me to the next question, which is like, you know, it, what advice would you give to yourself? You know, if you if you could hop into a time machine yeah. and you know talk to the Clorama who's about to start working on Debias, like, what would you tell her? Ooh, that's a good one. What did I tell her? Oh. If you notice, there's a pattern in this podcast. We do a lot of time travel. We go back and forth. No, but it's good. That's a good way to figure out, like, if there's anything I could have changed, what what would it... If I if there's anything... Whew. Okay. Oh, that, see, here's the thing. I believe everything happens for a reason. Like, everything, even the bad things. So, like... I I'm scared that by going if I tell myself not to do X Y Z that like I wouldn't have a learning opportunity from it if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I, hmm, is there anything that <sighs> I think? Okay, you know what? I, I think I would tell myself um, to not worry about making friends um, and not worry about. Um, and be better at saying no to certain things, like follow your gut. Like there was, I think being, I think sometimes there's a lot of drama that can happen around with people that you bring close to into your your, your life. I, I think I had 
doing product development, it's easy because you're isolated. You have to be isolated in order to work. When you're doing marketing and on social networking and all that kind of stuff or whatever, um, oh, yeah, the social media stuff and all that kind of stuff, like, you're constantly around other people. And so when you're around other people, there's a lot of energy that you're uh, kind of taking in at that point. And sometimes it's good. Sometimes it's, it's, it's hard to manage. Sometimes it's, like, great energy that turns negative later. And it's, like, how to... And I, I didn't have any shields to protect me from that. I, I started working in a studio where there was so many other stressed, amazing people, um, but a lot of people are on their own things, and you start getting close with a lot of them. You looking, I was looking for emotional support through people, and I think I, I think I would have told myself back then, uh, don't worry about, just keep being isolated. <laughs> I think I would have been, I think, I think, I could have been. If I was if I was okay with being isolated or just sticking around with my a few of my friends that have always that I, I was sticking around that have all, are one hundred percent always positive and I, I've been long long term friends with them and they were the people that I hung out with like once a week when I was in product development they were my break if I had just kept that routine up versus try to make new new friends or new networks or blah 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 uh, I think I would have had a more saner experience. Wow, you know I wonder. Um, well, something that that rings true to me is the uh, ability to say no to people yeah um has been really like a tough lesson that i constantly try to and, and it's like i'm always relearning it like i'm like and and so it's uh and sometimes you know it's it's tough because it almost i've been in situations where like well if i say no to this opportunity to work with this person that i might not get along with that's great, but like, fuck! I also need to pay rent, so fuck! I'll I'll, I'll deal with it. So so yeah. I can't say no here. You know, it's like, yeah. it's like it sucks because when you're when you have to worry between like, when you have to like think about whether you want to work with someone or or paying rent, it, a lot of times you feel trapped. Yeah. And um and you know, funny enough, like I was I was in a weird situation like that, and I I got out. Um and um and yeah, it wasn't. Yeah, God, it's yeah. it's weird. Like I, I want to talk about like my psychiatrist and all that aspect of my life, but it's like, do I want to? Do you want to, Chris? Do you really want people in your life like that? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I always, I love, always interesting. I love when, well, I listen to a lot of like podcasts and stuff too. So like, I'm always like, when the, when I see someone that I like idolize, like it's like, oh yeah, I talked to my therapist. Oh my gosh, they have a therapist. Too. Okay, so it's like, it for me, it like normalizes it. But like, and like, plus you learn from that experience. It's like you got to go to that experience without having to pay for it like they tell they, what they learn from their psychiatrist or therapist and it's like oh okay like got it like it's like a gem that i could like borrow but i mean i don't know i, I mean it's up to you but yeah no you know what i th- thank yeah. you you're right i mean it's like um it's it and for me it's such it's a it's to, it's a, this honest fear of like you know being uh i i, I think my problem is that i worry a lot about what people think because yeah. i think I have a fragile ego. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm pro- I'm like protecting my ego all the time. Like it's it's just like this weird thing. Like yeah, and it's like man, you know, I need what I really need is um, to go backpacking <laughs> across the world. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And do uh, and do some LSD in India. So I think that's. <laughs> I think that's what's going to happen sometime soon. Yeah. yeah. I highly recommend a travel trip. If you haven't done that yet, like definitely it's a great way to get in touch with yourself and to remember who you are outside of what other people think of you. Um, 
and to not yeah to just build that muscle in, in that department but yeah I, I mean I'm, I still suffer for that too like I think it was I definitely was fresh like more amazing when I came back but then like over time the more the longer you're in an environment where everybody cares about what everyone thinks like the longer that's just gonna take on you yeah. <laughs> so I feel like you just have to do constant breaks like I, I definitely that's I think that's gonna be my reason for my channel channel my travel in December is like okay I've been back in the pot and I, be- I started to become what it, the pot is, the environment is, and I'm like, oh no, let me go back to that place where I was a lot more free in myself. So that way, when I go into the next thing, I come in from that place versus, yeah. Have being, you ever been to Burning Man? Uh, no, I haven't been to Burning Man. Uh, that's, that's in California, right? It's in Nevada, and we should go. We should <laughs> totally go. Um, here's the thing. I, yeah. This is it's like a for I've been twice, and both times like. Were mildly life changing. <laughs> it was just like, and it, it was just like, and they were, um, and the, and the thing about it is that, like, um, you know, I I went in there just without zero inhibitions, just not expecting anything the first time, and you know, I went in there with this like, and at a point in my life where I was in this weird rut, and I came out of there with like, uh, with this experience that I'll never forget, and it was, um. And it was it was like um, it was like I, I spent I, I spent a year living abroad in, in Taiwan and traveling across East Asia and and wow. and I, it one week in Burning Man felt like uh, felt like I, I I hate to like I don't mean to like re- reduce it to this but it felt like you know my year at Burning Man was just as equivalent as my my one week at Burning Man was just as equivalent to that one year in Taiwan in terms of like how much it changed me. Wow. Um, yeah, it was, wow. I mean, it was so intense and it was um, something that I think a, a lot of people should experience. I don't know if it's for everyone. Yeah. Um, the desert is hot and it's also cold at night and there's a lot of like, um, um, there's a lot of uh, a lot of things that you take for granted in the real world that like you get there and you're like the fuck <laughs> yeah. how, how is this fun you know like but, yeah. but then you but then when you embrace the like the 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 avalanche that you're a part of and you embrace the art and the expressions that people bring out there it's it it's um it's unlike anything 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 i've ever been to before and it sucks that it's so expensive it sucks yeah. that it, it's not accessible to people in lower income brackets like it's it's it, it really it, it shouldn't be like an investment you know for people to yeah. go it should be like something that you can do and yeah because it's so yeah it's it was so intense so insane yeah. um and yeah you combine that with psychedelics like holy fuck I don't know if I don't know if you want to go there. Um, I I don't. This podcast has no like. We don't. This is the 21st century here. <laughs> yeah, I'm scared to try that stuff. To be honest, like yeah? I, I've had some friends that had some like weird trippy episodes, and I'm just like I don't know if this is for me. Like I feel like I'm not I'm not brave enough. I, I always was curious, like especially like the people like you know Steve Jobs who did shrooms and it t- forced them to think about things. And I have friends that are like I love that are I. I've, I think are the best people and have done who do that and they they, they come away with the best insights or they feel like it you know it solved like their fears or made them think outside the box so i love the idea of that i love it i love it i love it i just i'm not brave enough to go through that. 
you know, it, go just take the risk. I 100% agree. And in, in, in like in terms of like being careful about it, because it's something that you do want to respect that you don't want to do it like in the in the wrong set and setting and wrong around the wrong people. You know, you, this is yeah. something that you like you're going to be in a vulnerable state and you want to you know, be in a place where you're going to be safe and enjoy yourself. And yeah, I, I, hopefully, you know, it's what I'm noticing is that like there's a, a, a push or a, a, an intent for um, for uh, therapy induced MDMA and even uh, psilocybin mushrooms uh, be, are, 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 are starting to become more uh, more of a topic of discussion. And I think that's good. Um, but like but honestly, like to be frank with you, like Again, it, going back to like being too vulnerable. I don't know if I should say this or not, but I'm going to say it anyways. Uh, you know, I'm scared. I'm 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 more scared of antidepressants than I am of psychedelics, based on my experiences with those. Mm-hmm. Um, holy shit! Like, like, like. Uh, have you ever heard of this one drug called Wellbutrin? No. Wellbutrin is for some people probably have saved their lives. And it was probably the thing, it was just the thing they needed. But because the human brain is so unique in every human, in, in, in every individual, mm-hmm. like when I first took this thing, like this, this, this uh, when I got prescribed for it, for my yes. like depression, um, the first couple days were like, were I, I, I was, I entered the first manic state I've ever entered in my whole life. And it was like, and it was I was manic in terms of like I loved everything and everyone and myself, yeah. and everything was gonna be okay no matter what decision I made. And you know it was like, and it was this thing. Oh God, that sounds amazing. It was um, yeah, it was amazing. I, I absolutely loved it, and it's like, yeah. and but it's also dangerous because yeah. it's like because you because it's like, uh, and I remember oh my God, I remember there was like, for the first time in my life or in my adult life, I was walking down the street. And I smiled at someone and they smiled back at me. And I was like, I, holy shit. I was like, holy shit, you can do that. You can do that. Like, I was like, holy shit, they smile. And it was like, and this was a dude, like another dude. And it was like, yeah. you know, you, yeah, usually I smiled at old ladies, right? Like, yeah. like in the morning, you know, like those. But like, it's a, this is like, an, like a dude, like, and I smiled and he smiled back. And it wasn't like. And it was just this like friendliness and it was like and then we just moved on with our lives and it was like this weird thing when I realized I was like oh, holy shit that's weird holy shit and um and I and I and I and I started craving like oh I hope life is this forever but but then came the swing in the other direction mm. where like um where like you know your brain you know yes it's flooded with dopamine but then it's it's sort of like the pendulum swings hard in the other direction where like Mm. it's it's sort of deficient and my god my god that was scary oh my god it was yeah dude i was like ah without getting too specific i was like i had researched and devised a way of like hanging myself without pain (laughs) like i was like and it was like it was crazy and i was like and i and it had, had i had gone uh had that drug had gone on that same wavelength for like another week yeah i don't i don't think i'd be here today Dang. yeah it was crazy it was That's, crazy like yeah. and you know how i found out like oh, oh god i don't want to talk about it like it's it's i reached like because it was like wow it was like a lot of, <laughs> i put a lot of research into it it was scary yeah yeah good um, no, that's but i don't want to yeah i don't want to say too much about it but it was like yeah it was like it got to that point and 
and no psychedelic has ever made me feel that way. <laughs> yeah. I've done LSD, I've done mushrooms, DMT, like nothing, MDMA, like no, nothing has ever made me feel that way. Yeah. And, um, and so antidepressants are scary to me. Yeah. Um, and, the Western drug. Huh? I feel like Western drugs are like that. Like Western drugs give you something, but they take something. It's always like, like I feel like that's so indicative of like western society in general but like it's always it gives you something really good but it takes just as much it's like or like it's if it's going to be if you if you're good you're good but when you're bad when it's bad it's bad i, I don't know i, I think it's yeah. just yeah it's just like medicine shouldn't have that type of concept it shouldn't take from you just as much as it gives it should put to heal you like but i think the way that capitalism works in our healthcare like it's just kind of like if they can make you temporarily feel something then it, it, it's, it's like there's a cost to pay for it and that's fine and it's okay and, them keep, yeah good so. and to be fair like this is like this is my experience this is not like the experience of millions of other people who their lives were saved oh. and to me like you know and to me it's like it i i think i i would have continued to keep taking antidepressants um, but then I just couldn't afford them. <laughs> you know, yeah. I, I mentioned to you, like, why we couldn't do the last podcast was because I had to leave. I had to quit them at cold turkey because I just couldn't afford them anymore. And so and I was and so that last podcast that we did, I was in a weird state. Um, uh-huh. And and I feel a lot more like myself now. And I'm and I'm really thankful that you're giving me the chance to, like, speak again on the show um, and and do this again. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> and, and, yeah, and hopefully in a better way. Um yeah. yeah, and so, and this is like a whole nother thing that like goes into like mental health in Silicon Valley is so brushed under the table. Like you know, mm-hmm. just people don't talk about it. You mm-hmm. know, they it's it. You, I was shocked at the amount of people are antidepressants in the yeah. VR sector or slash Silicon Valley tech sector. You wow. know, it yeah. it's like we have all this money and we have all this wealth, but like. You know, or we have this perceived wealth because I mean I don't have that much money in the bank right now. <laughs> but, like, but, like, <laughs> but 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 uh, but at the end of the day, like you know, what are we turning into? Yeah. So yeah, that that's the thing. It's like the it's a cost. It's just, again, it's, it's very indicative. It's like yes, you'll get X Y Z and it'll be great, but then you're, it's going to come at a cost that's just as harmful. But which is your mental health? <laughs> I think definitely in this industry, Silicon Valley is very much like make things happen by any means necessary, um, create the things or whatever. And and I think as a result, there's a lot of burnout. There's a lot of there's a lot of if if I definitely if I stayed in if I'd stayed in the momentum that I was going in, I think I, I definitely. I had friends who also went through depression and stuff like that, and they it, it always started when they started working at a, a a demanding job, a demanding corporate job, and it just takes 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 from them. And then on top of that, they they to the point where they don't know how to even replenish themselves, and it just takes so much. And they're under high pressure and they're under high stress. And at any point, you know, they could be fired or whatever, blah blah. blah and then yeah, and then they all of a sudden it triggers something that leads to mental health issues that they have to start. Uh, trying to adapt to and, and and those medicines have its own um demons that they come with and sometimes like sometimes it's good some, but there, there's always symptoms or side effects and every, it takes everyone differently and it just sucks that like our culture is so normal in this way when i was like i said i was in europe and was working there and that's not at all a thing like there's so much work-life balance is real and 
unless of course you're doing like one of those investment banking jobs or something like that but it, for the most part the culture doesn't operate that way and I was like oh it's because capitalism is not as strong here um, unlike here it's kind of like money first and then everything else second um, I, I don't know I think that can yeah it, it only makes sense that it would have uh, it would take a toll on people health it's not natural it's not natural to how humans are supposed to operate it's uh, buildings like no sight of like trees or like grass <laughs> like um and fluorescent lighting and like 20 hours a day or 30 hours a day or like just being constantly constantly um needed for things or take and yeah i don't know it's just and then yeah. you wonder like why are we then why are we here like what are we, like i question myself like you know what what am i doing in this virtual reality thing <laughs> what, yeah. why and it's like and to and, and and to me there's like it's a combination of a, a, a lot of things it's like but it's but it's um but it's also the realization that a- after having had an internship working um, at City Hall, SF City Hall, like I, uh, you know, I had come to the realization, you know, after has- having studied political science for five years um, in school, I had come to the realization that politics wasn't for me. Yeah. <laughs> after doing this internship, because it was, it was because I was, I'm action oriented. I want to do things. Yeah. You know? It's hence why I do these podcasts and I reach out to people like hence why I try to do like my own like my own things. And and so and 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 politics wasn't so much about that. It was more about like, how do we keep the rich rich and the poor poor, you know, sort of stuff like. And so uh, and so and so and 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 so I in virtual reality, I found both uh, an escape from that reality yeah. And it's and an escape towards a whole nother one that we could create that we could start building towards. Yes, yes. Um, and so and so and yeah, and and that was it for me. That was like okay, this is this is something that I can that I can feel uh, be a part of, and I know that I, it'll make a difference down the down the line. Um, yeah. And exactly. but it comes at a cost. <laughs> it's not. It's not yeah. yeah. <laughs> But at least as long as your heart is happy, then that cost is manageable. Like, cost will always be manageable as long as your heart is happy. But it's when your heart is not happy and you're paying that cost, ooh, it hurts. Like, but if, yeah, if you found your love in VR, and I, I found my love in VR for this for that same reason, too. It's like, oh, we can shape it because it, it definitely has the potential to go really wrong. And Lord knows if, who's in control now. It's going to go really wrong. But if I can have a say in it or I could do something with it, I could see it going really right in so many different directions. And I would like to... To, to contribute to making that happen because I don't think there's that many of us out there but there's enough people who are compelled by VR that are not usually even in technology that are trying to do things with it that are amazing and I, I'm excited for that 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 jump of it but I mean going on Twitter and like seeing all the same people it's usually white males and they're always talking about gaming and gaming and gaming all the different games you can play and games and it's like I'm sorry, like, I got told by somebody who was, like, oh, like, you know, nonprofit, like, doing social impact work with, like, first of all, I wasn't even, I was talking about, uh, <laughs> it was funny, it was, like, a little misunderstanding on Twitter, but basically I was saying, like, you know, I, I felt like some companies were doing a better job at, um, a fun, um, uh, putting funds towards diverse content and then that person i guess seeing who i am and who i was interpreted that i meant diverse creators and social impact projects <laughs> he's like he's like the, the response was like you know the uh you know like diverse creators is good and all that and diverse con uh and and social impact projects are great and all that but like at the end of the day that's not going to bring in the masses like that's what games does and blah, blah blah like that's not where the money is at and i was like okay like, first of all, number one, first of all, 
I didn't say anything about diversity of creators or diversity of content. Or, or sorry, diver, uh, social impact projects. Um, number two, um, I think when you talk about the gaming industry, the gaming industry is flooded. The gaming industry and entertainment is flooded with all different types of mediums to consume and hear stories, like, period. Like, you can go to the movies, you can go to theater, you can go to amusement parks, you can go, like, have your TV set at home, you can have Wi-Fi, like, your watch stuff, stuff on your phone. That market is flooded with all the different ways that we consume and games and entertainment. VR is not going to wipe them all out. VR will always be just one new way of doing that. That's just like kind of cool, but because the cost to wear it, it's it's the cost to put it on and activate and all that kind of stuff is still it doesn't it doesn't it's going to balance itself with balance itself out with just being like a nice to have amongst the other um other types of gaming and entertainment mediums. Whereas with social impact, the industry for um, nonprofit industry, I, I'm positive, is a billion dollar industry. <laughs> nonprofit, it, like, if you think of all the world's like uh, nonprofits and NGOs and all that kind of stuff, they're million, they're worth millions and millions of dollars. Like, and not on top of like the nonprofit industry as itself, they as an in and of itself, there's the corporate industry that all has a social corporate arm. So then you have not only the p- public sector, but you also have the private sector allotting at least 15% of its revenue to go towards public sector means. So when you're talking about like not social impact projects, like, uh, and it was like, yeah, they feel nice and stuff, but they don't like bring in money. Like, no, they do bring in money. They just, it's just, yeah, they bring in money in the larger scale than I think. Or if not rivaling, I think what games would bring in for VR, though, I think that would it would super be be more because right now they're showing like a lot of research that people who watch a VR experience they're they're going to donate four to six times more. So that's four to six times more money that it's bringing in um, in a nonprofit versus like uh, that was for the uh, United, uh, United Nations um, and um, versus like games. People are not playing them on a regular basis. People are not. There's no return on investment yet right now, so it's not serving a need to have. It's a, it's a nice to have, um, and VR was born as a solution for military training. Period. It was fulfilling a need to get people to do training. So if you're talking about industries that are going to be successful, it's going to be in this in the industries where there's a need for it, not where it's just like a fun thing to have. But unfortunately, the people who are they have the loudest voices in the industry of influence. They only care about what meets their most immediate needs. And if they're white males, obviously social impact stuff, they don't benefit from it directly. Um, uh, they don't need that stuff. They're usually the people who like feel bad but then don't really care that much. And so, yeah, they're the ones that want to play games 24-7 or whatever. And that's fine if you want to play games all the time. But, like, that's not the majority of people. And that's not where the majority of money is going to come from. And you're not you're not bringing anything new to it. So you're not going to be the person that disrupts all types of gaming. You're always just going to be a chap uh, a category of game of gaming providers. So to me, it's stupid that th- that th- these huge companies like Magic Leap and all that kind of stuff are like talking about games and like little things that you can do and assistance and stuff like that. But it's not like and it's so so very clear to whom it directly benefits. And it's almost like they're naive or don't realize how much that group is so small and the world is changing and um, that's not going to be sustainable. That's not a sustainable market for bringing out a new type of technology. You're not serving a need. You're just creating nice-to-haves because that's, you know, your, I don't know, your perception. Yeah, if they were really listening to people, if they really were listening to what people really want, yeah. Then there would be billions and billions of dollars investments into VR porn. Yeah. 
Yeah. That's what people really want. That too, yeah. <laughs> I mean, we are, yeah. If, if we can be honest with ourselves yeah. here, and if I can be honest with you without being weird, yeah. VR porn is fucking amazing. <laughs> <laughs> and, and we're barely scratching the tip of the iceberg. Yeah. And so, like, you know, yes, like, I'm with you. Like, yes, gaming is, you know, an aspect of this grand orchestra that virtual reality is. But, like, um, but, but, you know, but it also makes me wonder, like, you know, if, 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 if it really, if they really wanted to make money, why aren't they doing more porn? <laughs> <laughs> why? That, I think, is a different, I mean, who, what big company does do porn, though? Like, what tech company, like, I feel like that's, like, there's something oh, about yeah. that's a little bit kind of, like, you're in the, you have to, you have to work, operate underground, like, right? That's, like, an underground, because society is so, like, against it. Like, are there any, like mainstream i haven't said this in a while but like follow me down the rabbit hole here yeah i have an idea to throw at you okay and i'm and i was like all right you know i shouldn't i don't i didn't want to make it public but like but this this conversation is is it's too juicy for me not to so so i've been thinking about like how do you how do you commoditize virtual reality sex work um how do you like how do you like how do you create a service and where people can give each other virtual reality hand jobs and blow jobs and exchange money from it and like and it's like i know this sounds really weird but like um but i've been told from friends that have had experiences in certain virtual worlds um, with certain uh, lewd avatars that the experience with like live people like it's one thing to like experience VR porn with like um, with like an like with like an animation yeah or, like a watch a 360 movie it's a whole nother it's a whole nother thing with like another human being in that avatar interacting with you yeah <laughs> okay so I'll, I'll definitely uh want to make that cl- make it clear that i'm this is completely out of my purview <laughs> we have ventured very far off to where my expertise lies however <laughs> however like i said i did do a lot of work working with like tra- people who survive trafficking so i see it from a potential for it to to really, yes, like, I think when you're talking about, like, I see, see I, I have to see it through that impact lens where it's, like, oh, my gosh, imagine, like, instead of red light districts, like, in Amsterdam, where it's, like, these women who I think majority of them have been trafficked, um, like, at the thing, like, people just go into those rooms and they just put on the headset and, like, these women can go back home and live productive lives and yeah. have families. And, yeah, like, exactly. <laughs> yeah, like, could this reduce trafficking, um, you know, and... Like I see it in, in that way, and I think, and as as a, as a result, I, I would be as a result, I would be all for it. And also, too, I think there should be, uh, I think prostitution should be legalized. Like, duh. Like, I think Nevada prostitution is legalized, but I mean, I mean, granted, I don't like the like. There's a lot of trafficking that happens here, yeah. um, uh, and I and, and I personally know some people who have been trafficked here. Um, through like you know they had a boyfriend who uh, that they fell in love with they had very low self esteem the boyfriend makes them feel good about themselves and then pretty soon turns them and um, and I seen so there's a lot of that vulnerability but I mean 
Um, and then they, they, they returned to the point where they thought this is what they wanted to do. And then they finally, like, just, like, realized they came out for air, like, a year later after the spell was broken. I don't know. But it, that stuff is really scary. But, I mean, I think if you had VR porn and that was more lucrative or became more lucrative than having to use real women, because there's, I think there's a lot of risk with that, too. Um, yeah, could that reduce the need for, um, for yeah, for, for, for trafficking women? Like, that would be amazing. I, I think that would be... Yeah, amazing viable alternative. <laughs> so it's available in the market right now. And I definitely think that could be commoditized and that could be commercialized or whatever in the same way that's being done now. But uh, I think it would be a lot more safer and more, hopefully, a little bit more fun for people if you're using your imagination more. But I, I don't know. Without the physical stuff, I, I don't know. Yeah. Well, you heard it first on the NRVR podcast. So <laughs> if you want to fund this idea, hit, uh, hit Clorama up and I. He's unofficially a founder. <laughs> No. <laughs> <laughs> just kidding, just kidding. No, no. I don't want to you have your you have your own you you got like the like the 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 idea of trying to minimize stereotyping and like and just in um racial bias is is not an easy problem to solve. Yeah. And especially the way you're tackling in a way where like you're trying to create something that is something that is impactful but is also not like, you know, like not like trying to like you know, lecture people or shame people. You know, you're trying to do something in, in, in like cathartic and enlightening, and and, yeah. and and it seems like um, it, you know, that's it's a it seems like a a difficult thing to do, and I and I wonder like you know, first of all, like you know, I, I have to go back to another question I had I had I was like, what, what were your well, I have two questions for you. One was, what are your favorite learning resources when you're learning to make vr and the other question is um how do you make something that fits all those categories that fits you know that's in the venn diagram right in between all those things like what was like how 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 do you do that? <laughs> oh my god! Yeah, no. And see, this is where my brain excels at. It loves taking complicated things that are random and finding the common thread and then putting that together. <laughs> I love doing that. So, like to me, it's like what this is like the easiest thing. Like word, like I only have to have these categories. Like not. Nah. So, like yeah, no. I I think okay. So okay. First of all, I think if you have to invent something new or come up with something scratch, you're not you're not paying attention to the world. You're not paying attention to how the world works. So um, I'll talk about learning resources next. But like the the first thing to answer your question is, okay, how do I make games for people, or how do I make experiences for people that are fun um, that they um, can come out of that experience having more empathy and um, uh, and a reduction in bias? Okay. Well, what is that way? Does that work now? I, I was very lucky. I grew up in a very diverse city, um, San Jose. I was always surrounded by people of all different cultures and all different races and all that different creeds and all that stuff. And so for me, that wasn't a thing. Like, And the way that we all bonded with each other is through playing with each other or to doing things with each other, having fun with each other, having conversations, and then you know telling secrets and all that kind of stuff. Like That, that same way that we bond with people in real life um, is what is what can easily be replicated or kind of uh, created to have that impact in VR. In VR, there's no limits to what, what worlds you can create and what experiences you create. So it's just a matter of, like, how do I have this, that same type of opportunities for people um, where they can't get it in real life? So uh, if you think about in the case where we were able to kind of um, – 
you know, narrow our sub- our problem statement for, like, how do we do this for teachers? How do we increase empathy for teachers uh, with students who are underrepresented? Um, looking at that that demographics, teachers, 83% of teachers are white, um, and you have half the students um, in classrooms are students of color, 50%. Um, so... Um, these stu- these teachers, these eighty percent, are coming from places that are like midwestern states or whatever. Like they're going, they're coming from environments that weren't urban or weren't diverse. They're homo- homogenous, and then they become teachers and they start teaching different districts and whatever that are going to be have completely different cultural contexts than what they're used to. Okay, great, that's fine. Um, so now they, they these cultures are in this bo- these cultures are both in the same room. They both don't understand each other where they come from. It's completely different, and then she has to teach them. And they have, she has to get them in their trust, and she has to engage them, um, and so or he. Um, and so um, with that, um, it's like, well, how do we give these teachers experiences, um, you know, exposure to the different types of stories, to the context of these students and how they live, and what kind of barriers that they're obstacle uh, obstacles that they have, um, and then at the same time, like, what kind of uh, what kind of things that can we replicate in real in the real world and interactions that make people fond each other that make people bond with each other um so games obviously like that's what families use to bond with each other that's what people play with each other that when you go on dates you're going to laser i don't know laser gun stuff whatever like you're playing you're doing activities you're doing games um and so um and that's and it's fun um so that's kind of what that's kind of what for me was like okay and this was also too like around the time where gamification was like a popular thing and they found that that it, you reward people the way our brain works the more rewards you get when we work for something the more happy you are and you're more committed we are to the experience um so it's like okay that seemed like an easy uh uh category enough for me to like create the solution for it so I'll, I'll build a game um so then now looking at research what has worked embodiment okay great uh if you have a different avatar that's a different skin color your body starts to your brain starts to perceive that as your body and it starts to carry that same identity and therefore you have a reduction in bias or stereotypes associated with that trait because you were now once with it um okay great but the clatch is you have to do thorough research on it because i was a little bit skeptical i was like this feels a little bit like blackface again taking real world cues and where can this go wrong um i was like people do this for halloween or whatever and it's actually very insensitive it's actually um doesn't mean that they understand the black experience like they like you have rachel dolezal's of the world like yeah they they think that they're black but what is that what is black what does that mean when since when does that is that a personality trait like 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 what is it it's supposed to be just melanin scientifically so why is it what is it being associated with so Understanding how the brain works, whatever. Um, there is a wrong way to do embodiment, and there's a there's an okay way to do it. Um, and so then uh, packaging the game with the okay way. The bad way to do it is to have people embodied as a black person or whatever, um, and then say this is an experience that they've gone through, and then have them experience racism. And then <laughs> that actually is a really that doesn't reduce bias. That actually activates it and make it makes it worse. Um, and then also on top of that, understanding how different brains work. Um, some people are biased on purpose. They're consciously biased. I don't like X, Y, Z because this happened to me and before and or I just feel like I don't agree. Like I don't like them taking over my that, that those people are going to need a different solution than from someone who says, oh, yeah, I totally love this group of people, but uh, I'm going to type my purse. I'm going to hide my purse whenever I walk by them or um, I'm going to ask to touch their hair or I'm going to <laughs> call the police on them because just in case because it doesn't look I don't think they would, they would love their hair, but I'm totally fine with them. I'm not racist. Blah, blah. Like that's a different type of bias and that just different that has that needs a different type of solution. 
Um, and so being a cognizant of that, um, I had to scope down my target type of audience and, and yeah, and from there, um, learning resource, I guess, from is, uh, basically just kind of seeing what worked. I did a whole comparative analysis of solutions, what works out there, what in this type of space, what's up, where do, where do people say I went through this diversity training and it was so fun, or I felt like a better person going through this experience and it was, and if I didn't have this experience, I wouldn't have had this outlook, like where are people saying that, and it doesn't have to be around VR, it could be around traveling, oh, I went to this place and I traveled and ate and I made friends and I realized I, like, you know, these people aren't half as bad, <laughs> like, it's looking for those solutions out there in the real world and then just making that replicated and accessible in VR, which is what VR does best um, versus like trying to create something new. Um, yeah. yeah you know, in um, this is amazing. And I was talking about, and I was, um, after we, we, um, we had our last conversation, I, um, I, I, I ran across a, a post on Reddit that like, immediately lit my brain up with like ideas and just like i just wanted to get your thoughts on and it was this this documentary on uh daryl davis the jazz musician yeah who was able to um convince persuade these the kick the kick ku klux klan chief yeah. grand wizard of like uh maine or some some somewhere like that and it was like and the and and so he gave it, and I was watching his TED talk, um, and like and almost made me cry because it was just so intense, so like so real, and it was like, and and the thing that stuck in my head from that TED talk was his question, like the one question that kept driving his research and his work was um, like, how can you hate me if you don't even know me, <laughs> you know? And it was like, um, and it was just like, and I, and I, and it was like this. And, and so in my mind, I started, like, reevaluating so much, you know, because I'm not perfect. I tend to, like, discriminate based on, like, how you dress. <laughs> like, like, if I see people, it sucks because a part of me is, says, like, Chris, this is a self-defense mechanism, mm. you know. And another part of me makes me feel bad because, like, well, you shouldn't judge people just by the way they look. But, like, if I'm walking down the street and I see, like, five dudes, no matter what skin color they are, and they're all wearing red <laughs> for some reason, yeah. hmm, I get, I, I get, I get weak. I, I, I get spooked. I get, you know, I get yeah. a little, I, my, my spidey senses start tingling, you know? Yeah. yeah. And I start thinking to myself, I was like, should I start getting ready for fight or flight? And for me to be to be frank with you and to anybody who's listening, for me there is no fight or flight. I have yeah. no fight or flight instinct. I have freeze. I freeze. Mm. You know Black Panther. He always he never freezes. I always freeze. Yeah. Yeah. That's me. I'm yeah, the opposite of Black Panther. It freeze. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And so like yeah, it's weird. It's like um, and so like it's so it's weird because it's like I don't know, you know how to. You know, I, I don't know how to feel about these thoughts, you know, like. Yeah, you, you shouldn't feel anyway. It's normal. These are all normal thoughts. They're all, again, we, we're not, we can't can really control it. It depends. It's all whatever our unconscious brain pattern has created patterns in, in terms of everything that we've consumed from day one of being on Earth to, to the current day. Um, it's going to find patterns and it's going to have associations associated with them depending on the circumstances that you encounter those those 
situation. So, for example, the the five the five men with red, like it'll remember when's the last time that you were whatever another and whenever previous experience that you've had with uh, that those same conditions, but you had an emotionally charged um, feeling around it. Your brain packages it up and says, "Remember this as a way to protect yourself." Exactly. Like, and so now, um, anytime you you go out and it puts that stuff together without your awareness, without your consciousness. Uh, conscious control is just that's how our unconscious brain is wired to find threats in our environment and anytime it and it takes the cues of whenever you feel a certain way around that threat or whatever that physical trigger is your brain says oh keep these two together this is what's going to happen the next time they come across this so like whatever like so it just kind of which is good in a sense and um because it protects you from a lot of things where it is real, uh, where, for example, like, you're walking on the street and, you know, s- someone's holding a gun or, like, not, maybe not that, maybe not that. Let's say, say like... Um, a crowbar, a baseball bat. A bar, a baseball bat, and they have an angry face, um, you know, <laughs> so it's like, yeah. so there's, like, if your brain was like, oh, this person could just be in a bad mood and just came from, you know, doing uh, construction work, like, you know, like, and then you stand there and then, like, like, you know, like, your brain says, oh, this person's angry, this person's, like, about to, like, you know, strike, it's, it's danger, like, run away, like, that's, that's okay, that's good, those are signifiers that lets you know, like, you know, you have to, you have to, um, exit the situation the problem is is when it's let's say that they if that wasn't the only the only factors it was because of the skin color then that's that's when it becomes harmful to society on a collective level so if it says like you know if it was a white guy you know with an angry face and a crowbar and he's coming to this like crowded room or whatever like and you don't feel any like you don't feel scared <laughs> then that's how mistakes happen or whatever. But if it was a black guy that did it and then you feel scared and then that black butt guy is in danger, especially if you didn't get the same. So that, that's the white privilege thing where it's like, oh, sometimes white people can do things and have more symptoms of being aggressors, but they people kind of give them the benefit of the doubt. Or there's a little bit more compassion or whatever. Um, so then the police won't get called or it, people won't get hurt until it's too late, <laughs> um, which is the downside of that. Uh, um, and then you have, but if like a black person were to do the same thing, because there's all these associations with them being criminals and all that kind of stuff, um, um, there's going to be different uh, reactions to that. There's going to be police called immediately. Someone might pull out a gun if they have a gun and shoot them or whatever. That could be a life threatening thing. Yeah. And it's all because the, not because of anything else except for a biological trait. That's when it becomes a problem. Um, but, um, Ideally, in that situation, no matter what the skin color is, you're going to do the right thing and, and, you know, call the police or whatever. Some things like whatever. But like, unfortunately, that doesn't really happen too much for white populations. It happens mostly for 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 just blacks. And so it's just kind of like it creates this like weird double standards in society. Some people are going to be in prison a lot more often because of they're more likely to get the call cops more often versus other groups of people who are not um, or there's a lot, of, a lot of misjudgments, a lot of mistakes, a lot of false accusations. Um just because, yeah, they look the part and people are more likely to believe it and they're more likely to get sentenced worse and then they're more likely to get put in prison. They're more likely to get a longer sentence. When they come back out, they can't get a job. They're more likely now to become homeless. Like, it's just the cycle that um, all had to do with if they had a physical trait that was different biologically, would that have changed? Would their life be different? And knowing that, like, I have changed my lifestyle and how I live my and the life's choices I make so that, I can minimize the risk of being associated or being stereotyped and being in the wrong place in the wrong time. Like something that I'll do. And I, and this is like 
there's 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 I have like real advice and then I have like 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 uh, you know l- pro life tips. Um, and the, my my real advice is for, for that's helped me um, in a weird way, in a weird like week. Like I almost feel ashamed of admitting it, but it's like I started like I would wear like yellow sweaters or like like super like non-threatening colors. Yeah. <laughs> just like, yeah. just like yeah. you know, because I'm you know like like I'm a I I've, I've done a lot of martial arts. Like I can defend myself. I'm yeah. I'm I don't, I'm not scared to fight, but like I also don't want to fight no one. Like I don't want, I'm I rather run. Yeah. And it's, and, and 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 so like. And so to be put in a situation where like, you know, yeah. So so yeah, I wear like a lot of like, you know, uh, like big like like bright colors. And the other advice that I have for like, for for young men, um, not just like not just like guys of color, but like, is um, to wear a onesie. Um, <laughs> wear 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 a Pikachu onesie. Mm-hmm. Um, wear a Charmander onesie. Wear a Wilfred outfit. Out when you go to a party or when you go to uh, work or anywhere you go, because look at just think about the optics of a cop beating your ass while yeah. you're dressed up as Pikachu. <laughs> think of the optics; they wouldn't want that, you know. Yeah, yeah. And so, and so, and so that's like, and so like, if all if all men of color and 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 men that feel like you know they sh- that feel like hey we should. Um, we should all do this. We should all like do a movement. We should march down the the White House, a million onesies, <laughs> a million onesies. Yeah, yeah just to, to sh- just to show just to show how threatening we we look. Yeah, exactly. We're all, we're all look at us. Here, here's the here's the bad hombres you're you've been looking for. Here yeah, yeah. Um, so, but honestly, onesies like at, when I was at Burning Man, where I was like. Where uh, where 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 I go to these like parties like onesies are fucking awesome you know just like just just a life pro life tip in general like people want to hug the shit out of you no matter who <laughs> it's just yeah. you get like so many hugs it's awesome so so onesies I'll never outgrow them I'll be, like, <laughs> yeah. I'll be an eight year old guy no one can shame me I'll be walking around with a onesie yeah um, <laughs> that's cool <laughs> so yeah I did that yeah yeah so. So there's something there. It's and it's yeah. something there where like um you know I'm I'm realizing in VR where like going back to the, like the Daryl Davis thing was like you know what he's what he did was like he exposed these people to to his own humanity to himself. And I wonder like if we could do that in VR like like that's why I started in VR chat I started looking for like um tan skin brown skin colored uh anime avatars. So yeah. that I can like, so that they can match my skin tone a little more, and I can like, I don't know, and I could like, reach out to people and not feel like everyone look like everyone else. It's yeah, yeah. I don't know. We'll see how that goes. Yeah, I'm, I mean, I mean, I, I like that too. I, I I'm sad that Oculus. Um, well, I'm not sad. Well, I don't know. They they released the avatars to have like yeah human skin colors now, but I kind of liked having like the green, like see through like kind of effervescent type of I think that's the word effervescent um type of skin like I'm I, I miss that I like I liked I really liked that like I'm actually one of those people that like I like the idea of not having a skin color um oh. yeah I like uh, the idea of not being a human like I'll be like um a Yoshi or a Pikachu yeah. 
more fun. Yeah. Oh, I see. I can't do that. I like to be human, but that's good. That's cool. Yeah. So you're one of those alt space people, or probably, or like whatever high fidelity. I think that like dress. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I think that's interesting. I feel like when I see those worlds, I'm just kind of like, ah, oh, my brain is like, it's too different. Mm. I love it. I love it. I do believe the concept of, like, I love everybody being their true selves. But I think there's something about, like, the visual optics of no uniformity that makes it kind of, like, which is almost almost hypocritical. (laughs) Turns me into a hypocrite a little bit, where I'm kind of like, oh, I kind of, I feel like it's more visually pleasant when everything has, like, some shape of similar form. Um so I guess maybe that's just me posing my human expectations. Like all humans have two legs and two, two I mean, uh, mostly two legs, two arms and a head, like whatever. It's all going to be the same. We just all have different characteristics. I think I like that kind of a thing versus like everyone's completely like one person's a ball. Another person's like a head with a little person puppeteer on the, on the top or like another person's like, yeah, like a Pikachu or whatever. And it's just like, yeah. Yeah, it's so in the in like what's it, what it gets and it gets so. I mean, VR chat and alt space and these social VR spaces are like are immense athro- anthropological like data mines. Yeah, like if you wanted yeah. to like if you're an anthropologist or someone who human who studies humans, human behavior, human psychology, like humans in general, like you wanna you wanna get there you want to check out these places you want to see what's what are people saying to each other how they're interacting how they're transferring real world interactions to the to the virtual world and back and forth yeah definitely those those are questions that are going to be interesting and fascinating and i wonder another thing that i'm going to start bringing things down to a close it seems like we've been having a good conversation so far but like just the just to start bringing things down to a close a couple more questions i have for you is um how do you see um ar for example um being used in the realm to train people um yeah to be- I, I mean i think i see i, I see, that's what I, that's what i'm excited about ar is like yeah. I'm, I'm excited to see a use case for it that actually is meaningful versus like all these little like games and stuff like the pokemon pokemon go game was like oh yeah like games like that like turning harry potter into something like that would be like amazing but like for the most part that's not what i think like is like you know they people keep comparing it to the iphone so like the iphone serves a lot of different purposes like not just games like it's like the it's the google maps feature it's location-based stuff it's the like being able to like find information easily like that kind of stuff so i'm curious to see like how augmented reality evolves into being that type of a tool for us where we need it um until then i'm just kind of like okay it's cool it's fun to see like a bunny twerking on a on a desk but like (laughs) like it's not to me that's not um that's not that's it doesn't meet the meaningful category of like this is a technology that's going to make a difference that's going to be the next biggest thing it's just kind of like i see the potential for it to do that and i'm excited for what use cases come up to to deliver on that um um but yeah to solve some needs in like a lot of different important areas um i think in terms of like bias training it would be great to see like you know if we were like all in presentations and we were giving eye contact or not presentations we had a team meeting like it can say like oh you gave like you know being able to calculate how much the percentage of time we gave eye contact to different people versus others or like um like being able to uh detect when people might have a question or not might be afraid to ask or being able to spot our blind spots like uncover blind spots in the in a meeting that make it uh that would help us make it more inclusive and bring out the best answers for it or that kind of stuff like uh, i 
that's all I'm, I'm mostly excited about. I, I love VR as a gaming tool. I do. I'm a first-person shooter person. I do love games. Don't get me wrong. I'm not hating on that industry at all um, in, the, in that sense uh, I, as a consumer of it. But um, in terms of where I think it can make a meaningful difference, I think it's more in those practical use cases um, where it's, that market is not flooded for tools and, and they're still desperate for tools. So uh, where I would like to see VR and AR is like how can we make for more um, – how can we make for more inclusive environments uh, where people can feel free to be themselves or be and have optimal social interactions with each other? Um, so that way, um, there's more productivity in general uh, and more innovation for that leverages diverse groups of people. If that makes sense. Mm-hmm. No, very cool. And um, yeah, I was wondering if do you, have you put much thought or have you like mm, have you thought about like what would a device analog look like in AR? Like if you could do behavioral training for mm-hmm. bias training um, in in AR, is there a way? Is there a way to crack it that a, VR can't do it, or is this something where like VR just stands out for just the different reasons? Like you know, it's it's further along as a as a as a technology. It's uh, has better tools, a bigger community. Um, I mean, just the list goes on. But like, I'm, I wonder like if there is an analog of the bias in AR is there yeah what would it look like is there or is or is that something that you know you're just not too focused on you're focusing on on VR for now I'm definitely not focused on AR right now but I, I definitely can imagine like a, a need, solving again what's what's the need in the classroom it would be great for teachers to have real time feedback on their um on the on the, engaging students in the classroom from different backgrounds. So like, uh, if they were to have glasses, and of course we would just do it a whole set. Like, but like if the glass, if they had like glasses on, uh, where as they were talking to the class or they're picking on students to answer questions. Like, there's certain behaviors that are associated with uh, if they have high expectations for different students or lower expectations. So it's like being able to uh, give feedback on those behaviors as in real time. Like if I'm interact, if I pick on a female student in a math class and she gets the answer wrong. How, do I help her figure it out and get to the right one, like most teachers would normally do with a male student? Um, or do I just say, okay, uh, I'll go to another student? And then um, and maybe having the glasses in real time just be like, oh, help her get to the answer, or like, uh, you know, that kind of a thing. Or like, you know, just being able to um, have that real-time bias interrupter um, where you can get that feedback immediately like you know if you're skipping over people if you're punishing the wrong people if oh you're about to punish someone and like give them detention and like say like this person got detention but this person didn't for the same crime like like i don't know like or for the same crime sorry same mistake or whatever like you know having that kind of a guidance or aid like almost like a teacher assistant um would be a really interesting use case for it i, I don't know what that would look like um i mean ideally you just have helpful teachers but i mean technology can can make that a little bit more um, less prone to human error, I, I would guess. Uh, yeah. Awesome. Let me uh, let me close this thing with uh, this with this one last question, um, which is, what is what is your grand vision for the bias? Like, um, you know, when uh, is there is there a point at which you tell yourself, all right, this is what success looks like? Now, like, can you can you paint that picture for me? Like. You know, yes. the, the grand vision and the, and just and, 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 and what you see from the pinnacle success at that point. <laughs> yeah. Success looks like to me that 
success looks like to me that this convinced enough people that data needs to be utilized to uh, hold accountable to whether how biased their systems or their cultures are, um, and therefore structural change starts happening. So they don't even have to use our product, but they are implementing programs that is going to reveal more data that's going to drive solutions to actually empowering people to be uh, more in control of their training and having ongoing training. So success to me is like, all these companies having a, st- a structure for ongoing regular training that are fun, that's going to help people be um, more inclusive in terms of like and, and uh, like shape perceptions to be uh, more equalized with each other, not like that kind of stuff. Like I, I would love to see that happen on a grander scale. Uh, using this product, it would be great to have them. I would great to see all these big companies using, uh, rolling out a bias training, having like people having it at their desk, and then before they go into a tough meeting, or before they go into a performance re- review, or before they go into addressing a group of people, or I don't know, um, they have this VR headset at their desk that they can put it on, and they can put on a certain training or experience specifically designed for that type of situation, and then they'll be able to take it off and then go into that meeting like fresh or like. Um, with, with that that kind of like um, desired outcomes that, that they're looking for in that meeting uh, because they were able to put on like a five minute thing before before the experience. I don't know, it would be interesting just to have this like, yeah, ideally it would be great to have like them all to have a headset at their desk, be able to access these trainings at any time and on a regular basis. And then the company is actually looking to see if it's making a difference, like holding the product accountable. Do, do our people reporting higher satisfaction at work? Are we getting higher revenues? Are we more innovative? Are we more competitive? Like if I can see companies adopting these systems and making that practice on a regular basis, then that's success to us. Awesome, because then you're connecting outcomes to the data, and you can be like, "Here, this is what this is what this is what diversity looks like for a, a, a company. It, it looks like money." <laughs> yeah, it looks like money. It looks like people are happier. There's more morale, and it looks like people just generally are. Yeah, yeah, like you know, and and. And, and it looks more diverse. Like, I, I'm, we're more cr- concerned about the inclusive piece of it. Like, you don't even have to be diverse yet. If we can just get you guys to be inclusive to different viewpoints and different ideas and different whatever, then you set the – then when people – when it becomes diverse, that's already going to be a natural fit, and you'll be able to retain that and then just kind of fit that in. But if it's already a, a, an environment, which most of these are, where there's not much for diversity of thought or not much openness to diversity, um, and then you bring people in, they're not going to last long. They're going to have to – they're going to get – they're going to get ousted for different reasons. There's going to be a lot of bad things that happen that shouldn't happen to people. That's just kind of unfair. And I just think we just need to make the health of this culture, the cultures, the social culture of, the, of these environments, like just healthy again, just healthy. Yeah. Awesome. Well, I'm excited for all the work that you're doing and all the work that you will be doing in the future. Uh, Clarama, how can people stay in touch and follow up with all the things you're doing these days? Yeah, um, so you can, uh, we have the website, www.debiasvr.com. Um, you can email me through that if you have any questions uh, or contact us through that website. And then um, also we have a Twitter account, at DebiasVR, and that's where we have all the research. We're constantly posting different research um, citations for different solutions, how to start implementing bias training but like or implementing debiasing tactics at your job or your school or whatever. Um, we, we just, it's constantly just a flood of different good amazing resources and articles about um research behind it and strategies to use that can that you can start taking away today um yeah and you can also follow me personally on my my twitter at creative clo 
Um, and yeah, and I'm, that's, that's pretty much. Yeah, <laughs> thank you so much for having me on your show, Chris. It was so yes, cool. it was amazing, Clorama. I, uh, Clorama Dervilius, I have conclusively concluded that you are a lady and scholar of virtual reality. And I thank <laughs> you very much for your time. Uh, and I can't wait to have you back to learn more and just explore this 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 crazy, this crazy crazy industry that we're in. And um, yeah, thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, yeah, let's uh, let's do it. Let's do this again. Okay, sounds good. <laughs> All right, bye.